Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too, and I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. I'm your host for this evening, Michael Ullman Rothman, an officious little prick, just sitting here behind his cluttered desk in the littlest nook of the Overlook Hotel, where the resumes keep piling higher and higher around me. There's a stack over there, stack in that corner, another stack building behind me. Seems everyone wants to be the caretaker here even you. Now, I don't suppose they told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had in the winter of 1980. Well, my predecessor in this job left a man named Jack Torrance as the winter caretaker. He came up here with his wife and little boy, I think he was five, and he he had a good employment record, good references, and from what I've been told, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of complete mental breakdown. He he ran amok and tried to kill his family with an axe. They got away, surely enough, but uh, only by the good grace of our former head chef, who uh, was killed right outside that door. Took an axe to the chest. As for Jack, he was found frozen by officials outside in our hedge maze. (sighs) That's still hard for me to believe it all happened here. But it did, and I I think you can appreciate why I wanted to tell you about it. Obviously, some people can be put off by staying alone in a place where something like that actually happened, but hey, you seem more than qualified for the job, and uh, who couldn't use five months of peace? So, let me introduce you to our staff. Mr. Flieger, my closest associate, please say hello and tell everyone the first time you came to the Overlook. Great to be here. This is Dan. Here's Johnny Flieger. <laughs> uh, my middle name is actually John, so that works. That is. Uh, you actually have two yeah. Johns in your middle name. So that's yeah, we were just talking about that for some reason before the pod. <laughs> Daniel John John. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, the first time I went to the Overlook, I believe it was fourth grade. Uh, my friend used to ride our bikes to the video store, and I wasn't allowed to watch radar movies, but his parents didn't put any restrictions on his card. So we could just rent all the horror movies. And my parents would be like, you can't watch that. And I'd be like, great, I got a good recommendation for this weekend. So we had always heard about The Shining. And I remember being really nervous going into it because I heard how scary it was. But it was scary in a way that I don't think I could have predicted as a kid. I thought it was going to be constant, like, you know, ghost jumping out terror. But instead, it's like this creeping, uh, I don't know, it's like a parasite that kind of stays in your brain so i was hooked and i've probably seen it hundreds of times since this is our i feel like this was our meat cute kind of was i mean obviously with stephen king but i feel like the shining is one that we always kind of connect on um and you got to be jack torrance in our we did like kind of a 
a live sort of uh, Stephen King event in Chicago. Yeah, that, that was great. We had everyone dressing up as characters, and Jack Torrance just seemed like a nice go-to for me. So yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we tasked you to just kind of sit at a desk at the typewriter for four hours, but um, <laughs> not not the most fun, I guess, for that night. But it it, it turned out well. I'm glad to have you, uh, Mr. Flieger. Uh, it wouldn't be the same without you here in the Overlook. Now, uh, Mrs. Reeves, our chief events coordinator please welcome our guests and tell them the first time you made the trek from sidewinder to the overlook oh hi hello everyone sorry let me just put down this box of uh, gold tinsel and balloons really oh. quick <laughs> and hey yes hi i'm rachel uh light of my life reeves and <laughs> nice. um the first time i embarked upon the shining i saw the film first so you know that's a thing mm-hmm. and i saw it probably like early 2000s when I was uh, getting into cinema, as they say. And by cinema, (laughs) I mean watching things like Fight Club and Requiem for a Dream and Pie and, you know, United States of Leland and things like that. Like I was like, (laughs) oh my God, there's like this whole world of movies I never knew about. And so The Shining was in there and it blew my mind. And then immediately I was like, well, I have to read this book, of course. Like it was on my list of King that I hadn't read yet. And then was also like, oh, okay, well, that's a little different. So it is, it's always funny to me to hear like, which one you did first, like if you read the book first, or you saw the film first, because it always kind of, I don't know, excuse your opinion, I guess, or like what you think of the film. So yeah, that's, that's my uh, journey to, um, through Sidewinder to the Overlook. Well, I'm glad to have you as well. Now I should remind you that all the best people to stay at the Overlook. And uh, well, tonight is no exception. So I'd like you to meet our very special guest. He's the writer and producer of thrilling pictures like Host and Dashcam. Mr. Jed Shepard, please introduce yourself and tell our other guests why the Overlook Hotel is a favorite destination of yours. Oh, hello, everyone. Lovely to be here at the Overlook. My name's Jed, <laughs> insert funny pun here, Shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I first uh, came across The Shining, the, the movie, in school, um, a kind of lax music teacher who just didn't want to teach us anything. <laughs> he he would just, and music, the music lessons would run for over three lessons. So it, it was like over two hours long, the music lesson. And he would just close the door, stick a video on, and just go off and, and just just do whatever he has to do and just let, <laughs> let us watch films. And I watched a lot of cult movies that way from that teacher, an Australian supply teacher, it was great. So we watched The Shining in music class oh, uh, in, our, in our Catholic school, in our school uniforms, just going, <laughs> are we allowed to watch this? What's going on? And I remember distinctively that when Danny first has his, well, Danny Lloyd, when has his first um, kind of uh, premonition at the start, I was I was almost out, but because I was there with with, with my peers, with the other school kids, um, I had to stay because it, it was it was absolutely terrifying. Um, but yeah, and ever since then, like uh, I've just I've just been locked in, and, and, and I'll tell you a little bit more about why I love Stephen King so much a bit later on in 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 the show. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that's why we're all here, right? Is uh, mm. the, the King himself. And uh, yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I feel like I, I stumbled upon it uh, around that same time as you, Jed. I, it was one of those things that I had heard about um, just through its lore and, and, and the, I guess, its reputation. And honestly, like, 
I, this is going to sound so ridiculous, but one of the first times I really actually saw it was uh, with Twister in the scene when they're at the drive-in. And I just remember seeing the two twins and they cut to them. And it's, you know, it's already an ominous scene anyway, because the tornado is kind of descending. So they, you know, they have this like, you know, John DeBont like does this really great job and just, you know, setting the tone and just with the shining there, it just made it even that much more like unnerving. And I just remember like, like tugging at my dad and just be like, what the fuck was that? And like, I need to see this movie now. And so I was, yeah, I guess I was around 12. So dad's like, pay attention to the movie we're here for. Yeah. Well, that was, (laughs) look, it's Dorothy. It's that planet Hollywood. We can go see it. I was like, I don't want to watch this movie anymore, dad. Can we go to Blockbuster and go run it? I want to go, go see this, whatever that, you know, the guy from, uh, you know, Joker, why is he in that movie? You know, because that's where I knew him from. But uh, anyway, really excited to talk about The Shining. Uh, you know, for, for context, we're, we're doing this episode as we do all of the episodes in the Long Watch series because, well, we only, you know, glossed over the, the title. And when I say gloss over, we spent at least 30 minutes talking about it on the original episodes that are dedicated to these books. But we thought in typical Losers Club fashion, we got to go deep, you know, like this is us. This is our thing. This, you know, this is, uh, this is what we do. So as we've done with stand by me last year, and we also do the Shawshank redemption and we celebrated 45 years of Carrie, we're going to be doing this. And it, it seems a little left field. You know, there really isn't that many, like everyone keeps saying like, why are you doing the shining? It's like the anniversary. No, no, that the anniversary was two years ago. Uh, okay. What is it? Like, I guess technically it is the anniversary of the book, but let's, as you'll, you'll learn in this episode, there are a lot of disparities between the two. So, um, yeah, we're just, we're, we're doing this because I, I really wanted to have Jed on the show. Um, Jed, I believe you, you, you threw out the shining also, right. As, as one of your, your, the, the choices that you would want to talk about or. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's either, it was. Either what was going to be The Shining, uh, Salem's Lot, or weirdly The Langoliers. I'm, obs- <laughs> I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with The Langoliers. Obsessed. Yeah. Yeah. I was well, on that episode when we did that. It's oh, the freeze frame ending where they're like, yeah. <laughs> it's hilarious. Just, just, just those like, Atari style uh, graphics just for, for the creatures. Incredible. Yeah. We, we, actually, we actually had David Morris on a month ago or two months ago what is time anymore? And, uh, he, and I asked him, I was like, Oh, what was it like when you, you know, did, what was the blocking like for these monsters or whatever? <laughs> and he's like, well, actually the funny thing is, is my, and, and my, my family still makes fun of me for it is that I, we didn't know what the effects were. We just saw, you know, like a, a thing, you know, a board or something. And then when we saw it, it was like this big joke for, between the whole family. It was just like, look at this fucking movie you're in. <laughs> like, what is this? But yeah, no, Langoliers is a is is a a club favorite around here just for how ostentatious and wild that movie is. Um, it's a fun one. But look, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, and now that we're all acquainted, I'd like you to come over with me into our prestigious gold room. It's movie night at the Overlook, and our staff will be quick to add that this is a very popular activity at our hotel. And tonight's movie is uh, the one that we've already been talking about. Yes, uh, Stanley Kubrick's 1980 adaptation of Stephen King's Chilling and very familiar tale to all of us here at The Overlook, The Shining. So, shall we? Hi, Lloyd. Been away, but now I'm back. Good evening, Mr. Torrance. It's good to see you. It's good to be back, Lloyd. All right, well, please grab a chair or even take a seat. 
at our bar. Liquor hasn't been put away yet, so get Lloyd to pour you whatever you want. Because what is a movie night at the Overlook without a little rich conversation? So let's start by discussing the background of the film, the production, the crew, the music even, and well, we'll get into you know other tangents, no doubt. Um, as I mentioned before, a real quick rundown, directed by Stanley Kubrick, screenplay by Kubrick and Diane Johnson, Cinematography by John Alcott, the great John Alcott. Music by Wendy Carlo and Rachel Elkind. And uh, a number of artists Rachel will soon discuss. Uh, release date, May 23rd, 1980 in the US and October 2nd, 1980 in the UK. Got to go with that UK release instead. I think this movie fits more in October. But uh, I, I kind of want to stop here for a second and talk about 1980 because I, I think that when you think about the you know the context of not only just horror but filmmaking in general i really do always point to uh the to, to 1980 i think it's it's i think it's one of the most landmark years for films i think it's my favorite year for pop culture i mean just some of the titles that came out that year it's just astounding run you get empire strikes back you get caddyshack american gigolo elephant man ordinary people gloria the fog friday the 13th airplane cruising dress to kill maniac the changeling Blues brothers fade to black cannibal holocaust and um you know oh god part two um which hey. i think is the title for it um but yeah it's, it's so book two oh book two that's i'm sorry book george two. burns sorry george Wait, don't respect on his don't name. send me to hell um <laughs> but so I, what i love about it is i think it's like the it felt like the, the kind of crossroads between like you know cutthroat 70s filmmaking and almost like the first whispers of the kind of inventive blockbuster filmmaking that I mean, would come to define the decade and it all had an edge. I mean, for the most part, all of it had an edge. Um, and then, you know, it kind of came crashing down <laughs> that November when, uh, Michael Cimino, uh, you know, heaven's gate hit. And, uh, I think studios got a little hip to saying, well, we're going to have to have a little more oversight, but am I alone in like just being obsessed with 1980? I, I feel like when, when 2020 was going around, we were doing anniversaries and stuff for it. I just fell in love with it the, that year a little bit more. I just I just didn't realize just how much ingenuity was wired into one decade. Flieger, what do you what do you make of this? You... Yeah, it, it's weird because I think the Chuck Klosterman book about the '90s. He was discussing how a decade doesn't really start at the first year, right? There's still an echo from the previous decade. So when you see a movie like The Shining, it has these '70s feel, even though it's the 1980. You know, it's obviously filmed late '70s and put together then, but it is like a transitional film, right? It, it, it gets that. You're saying the cutthroat from the 70s, but it also kind of moves things along. And whenever I see a movie that's from 1980 that looks bad, I'm just like, how did The Shining come out the same year as this? Right? Like, there was good filmmaking out there. There were great directors. So whenever something is just cheesy, or even like some 90s movies, you're like, how did this come out 10 years after The Shining? Because The Shining just looks... I, I, it's such a beautiful film. Like, I, I, every time I watch it, I see something new or I fixate on something else. I don't know. Do you guys have thoughts on the 70s films as well? <laughs> yeah. 1980, oh, I should say. Anyone? Uh, yeah, because I'm always fascinated by this, those crossroads years because I really do think that if you go back, hindsight's 2020, obviously, but I just think looking back at those those singular years, you do it unlocks a lot of what came before and what came after. Um, I don't know. What, what, what do you make of that, Jed? Do you think uh, there's some truth to that? Yeah, I mean... Obviously, the eighties is the kind of the, the decade of kind of fanboy nostalgia. Like anything that uh, people of a certain age, aka us, like right now, it's kind of uh, tainted and and 
and led by the stuff that's happened in the 80s like most of most of our references most of the things we like are, are based on on things that came out of the 80s i think personally anyway um, oh, totally, totally. so yeah so and anything post star wars I, I i think is the start of the nostalgia kind of uh movement in in film um and yeah this the 80s is it's just unbelievable for me i think it's 84 or 85 or 87 actually those three years specifically just have just incredible movies and my favorite movie of all time is a film called night of the comet from 1984 oh, and nice. so, so i'm just obsessed with with that particular year and and also night of the comet uh, you guys should do a night of the comet podcast as well and we can talk about that for <laughs> yeah five no, hours, we, deep we've kicked it around on our other podcast for sure we'll definitely keep that in mind nice. for you. that's awesome <laughs> uh so you'd say you're more of a, a, an 80s man than a, say the 70s yeah, I mean, I, I am. I do appreciate movies from from the seventies, but it's uh, the the eighties for me. I, I'm a big fan of big bombastic commercial uh, Spielbergian type movies, all the Amblin stuff, um, and obviously seventies had had Jaws and The Exorcist and and and, and uh, End of the Dragon, amazing films that I love. But for sheer quantity of films that I love, the the eighties kind of does it for me. Oh, totally. Rachel, what about you? Where do you spend? I, oh, I'm, I'm so split. I'm sitting here thinking about it. It's like, I love, there's certain, I think it's like things I love about 70s films and there's things I love about 80s films. You know, I love the slow burn. I love the colors and the wardrobe and the, I don't know that, that kind of atmosphere that 70s film have, but then, I mean, everything Jed just said about 80s films, like it's incredible. Like the, the bigness, the, the fun, the, I don't know, the, just chaos that some 80s films can have sometime. Like, I really appreciate that attitude. And I think that, you know, whenever you have a new decade, it's like, it's like you have a room full of people and they're all sitting there staring at each other and like, who's going to stand up and say something first, right? It's like the trends aren't set yet. It's like, there's, there's a direction, like the direction hasn't been set in stone yet. So you get all these different ideas coming out and it's kind of like, okay, which one is culture going to rally behind you know and then that kind of you see that in the later years like 84 85 so yeah you're looking at this list of like 1980 films all these ones you you mentioned and they're all over the map and yeah. it's that's wonderful I love that it's just all these creative ideas and people putting their own you know ideas and films out there and seeing like well maybe this will catch and they'll get a bunch more and maybe it'll go this way I don't know so it's it's always so interesting to see kind of I don't know the door is wide open and yeah. I think that that's so cool and also but just very quickly uh, politically in, in the in the UK the, the kind of conservatives came to power at the end of the 70s and basically broke britain for, for that entire decade uh, the, the mines closed there were riots all over the place actually 1980 uh well, 1981 there there was a massive riot in london and yeah it, it was chaos on the, on the streets and obviously you had things rallying against that like music for instance oh, totally. like the clash and things like that and 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 it was the kind of the tail end of, of punk um but what you got because of that is uh, a sense of escapism. People wanted to escape into the movies. So for, in, in the eighties, I feel like that's why in the UK, we kind of went to see these movies that were, were just these big bombastic, fantastical movies uh, with just ideas just to help us escape. And the eighties was kind of the last time that the UK really tried to do horror movies properly. Uh, before we just decided, we looked over at America and thought, you guys do it better. Let's just, let's give up for 40 years. 
<laughs> like, <laughs> coming back so, now though like we, yeah 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 because like the 60s and 70s we were kind of riding high with you and then when you guys came out with halloween and and night on elm street we were just like okay we we're, we're gonna stay in our corner we'll just we'll, we'll just do um just you know costume dramas and things like that yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, think, yeah. I think we we had the advantage of being closer to the home of cocaine production as well in the 80s <laughs> and i think you have to give a consulting credit to cocaine for a lot of films not necessarily the shining film yeah. but i i mean I, I agree with you jed like 84 is probably my favorite year as the year i was born but even like ghostbusters is one of my favorite yeah. movies and you're just like what an odd concept for a film right and mm-hmm. the fact that I mean, it holds up well, it's such a maelstrom of like pop culture at that point. Cause I mean, oh God, I mean, we don't have to get too deep into that. Cause I mean, you could literally have a whole podcast about like the different years of the eighties, I feel like. But um, yeah, with when you think about just the albums that were big then, and then also the, you know, the music and the television, I mean, it's in the films, it's, it's, it's so unfair. I mean, it, I get why the nostalgia for the eighties has lasted 20, 30 years. Like, I mean, why wouldn't you be obsessed with this era that had, that was just brimming with ingenuity. And yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, hopefully we get back to it again, but um, well, let's, let's, let's keep the eighties on ice for a second because we got uh, an ice is an apt uh, metaphor here because we, we got to stay at the overlook for just a little bit longer. And by a little bit longer, I mean the rest of the episode. So um, we'll keep the 80s in mind because I, I do like to set the template of like where we are uh, contextually and historically um, when we're in here. Um, it should be noted that this movie was budgeted for a Kingian 19 million, which is, wow. I thought was pretty interesting. <laughs> uh, yeah. Poetic. Yeah. Um, so that's the last little fun fact I'll put on there. Um, although I will say it's interesting that it has 84% of Rotten Tomatoes and a glaringly low 66 on Metacritic. What the fuck's going on there? Like, like some last minute reviews. Too low. I that's agree. Though. Yeah, wow. yeah. It's very strange. But uh, where do we begin? I think the biggest thing that we have to keep to, to mind is uh, that, you know, this movie is nothing short of Labyrinthian. So... I think we could get lost. Uh, I think we'd get frozen pretty fast. So I think to avoid that, I think we just hit on the essentials here in the gold room. And I think the best person to start with is the the elephant in the room, which is uh, Stanley Kubrick. So when we talk about Kubrick, I, I think it's right now for this conversation so it doesn't become a limited series podcast about one of the most prolific <laughs> filmmakers of all time. We probably kind of chisel it down to like, I don't know, the five years that he did between, you know, from the beginning to the conception of the, from the conception to the, the actual, um, you know, release of this movie. So you start off with where he was prior to The Shining and honestly, not great. Barry Lyndon had been a box office dud. It was a very par- tough production. It was a divisive film amidst the cast, the crew, amidst the critics, uh, clearly the box office because no one wanted to go see this uh, natural lit period piece, I guess. Where does everyone land on Barry Lyndon? Has everyone seen Barry Lyndon here? I haven't. My husband's constantly telling me, you got to see Barry Lyndon. You got to see Barry Lyndon. It's (laughs) pretty funny. I haven't seen it. I just, I don't know. I feel like it's one of those things I have to be like in the right mood and like prepare myself for. And I just am never at that point <laughs> it's, i've got to admit it, it it took me a few goes it really it really did um it, it, it's uh the living definition of of a slow burn i i, I think <laughs> really um yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it was it was it was a hard but like once i kind of let it take over and once um i kind of broke it up into chunks then it then it was cool and, and after i watched it i was really happy that i watched it because it, it is a masterpiece it, it just it is it's just 
it's hard for a 21st century mentality and, and our kind of MTV edited brain to, to kind of kind of appreciate these slow burns and, and the craft and the art that went into it. It was every single detail painstakingly kind of fabricated by, by Stanley. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a lot. It's, it's definitely a lot. <laughs> and I, I remember when the box set first came out for Kubrick movies, that the iconic white and black box set that was one of the first DVD box sets, if I recall. And I, I remember, I just remember like getting to that one and being like, eh, I think I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna jump over to like Eyes Wide Shut or you know Full Metal Jacket right now. Flieger, you're a huge Kubricky, you're a Kubrick scholar almost. Yep. Where do you? Where do you? Where, yeah, right. You went to school for it, but uh, a dissertation on on on, on Kubrick. Um, yeah, no, I, I I like Barry Lyndon. Um, it's not my favorite of his films, but it is. I mean, it's remarkably filmed. It's beautiful. It's. Um, I always think of that and Amadeus. Like I kind of compared the two because they have a similar vibe, but Amadeus is a lot more mm-hmm. fun. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just, just in terms of Kubrick though, like, I mean, the guy, he made some of the best movies in every genre. Like yeah. you can't mention sci-fi without 2001. You can't mention horror without The Shining. Full Metal Jacket is a war movie. A satire, Dr. Strangelove. It's just the guy, and I know like in the Room 237 documentary, they called him a bored genius. And I really do think that, like, he, I, I just think the amount of attention to detail, he borders on mania without fully crossing over. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I was telling Mike, like, in the documentaries about him, like, he gave, like, detailed directions to his staff with, mm-hmm. like, 10 directions for how he likes his eggs cooked and stuff. The guy was just <laughs> such hyper-focus on everything, and he wanted everything to be perfect. So I think Barry Lyndon is, it's an exercise in that. It's It's very meticulous. It's obviously a lot of thought went into it. It just kind of like what Jed said. It doesn't really hold up for our mindset now, but it's definitely worth mm-hmm. putting on the background sometime. And yeah, yeah. It's, I, I think honestly, where where I land on it is that it's it's not as terse and funny as Doctor Strangelove, but the highs hit those the those levels for sure. Like when that when the movie's funny, and the movie kind of hits all the right notes. It's it's pretty fantastic, but it's also just such an anomaly. I mean, like again, like I mentioned, Michael Chimino, like uh, which I'm I'm sure butchering his last name. It's maybe it's Chimino. I think it's Chimino. Chimino. Anyway, with Heaven's Gate, you look back and 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 you roll back the years and you see like what filmmakers were getting away with. Like Barry Lyndon is like one of the best go to examples. Where you're like, how the fuck? Like in the in an age of Disney and Marvel and IP now, this movie would never fucking happen ever. Yeah. Like right now, and it just wouldn't. So like. What I love about it is that we still weren't really in an era where, like, if you made a Barry Lyndon, like, the studios would be like, all right, you're out, you're in timeout. Um, instead, they're like, all right, well, you know, we kind of need a hit, you know, give us a hit. And so that's what he did. He basically, a bored genius is interesting. I like that. That's a good comp, uh, Fleer, because that's kind of <laughs> what he essentially did. He, he realized he needed to do some commercial. He needed a hit, and for a long time he'd been really intrigued by the idea of doing a, doing the horror genre. He's like, well, he had, he, you know he hadn't tried that on for size. Even though you could kind of argue that uh, Clockwork, Clockwork and Two Thousand One, even I feel like are horror movies at points. But anyway, straight up horror movie he hadn't done. Um, and I guess you could even put the killing in there too. Anyway, killing, straight up, yeah. yeah, like he really wanted to do a horror movie, but and this is why. So he has a good. Lolita's quote here. very scary. That's true. All of his movies have I'm a dark just in horror, basically. I find the yeah. subject matter disturbing. But maybe that's just me, but yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely disturbing. Um, you know, I don't want to, you know, don't put me out uh, on there. But uh, I, so he basically talks about horror. He said, one of the things that horror stories can do is show us the archetypes of the unconscious. We can see the dark side without having to confront it directly. 
Also, ghost stories appeal to our craving for immortality. It's a key word here when we're talking about The Shining here. If you can be afraid of a ghost, then you have to believe that a ghost may exist. And if a ghost exists, then oblivion might not be the end. And I think we, I think it's worth talking about that take of horror because I feel like that's the seed to so much of what would become The Shining, um, and ultimately what would divert him away from a lot of the source material. Um, Rachel, as a horror hound yourself, like what do you make of that take for for horror? Do you do you agree with it? Do you do you think there's do you think it's a little too cerebral to talk about the genre? What are your thoughts there? No, I mean I love it. I there's you know it just it's funny because there's that interview where King talks about how Kubrick called him and then asks him basically like says something along the lines of like ghost stories and haunted houses being optimistic because Mm -hmm. if you're like if ghosts exist that proves there's an afterlife so really like they're always happy stories it's an optimistic Mm -hmm. look at death and I just think that's so so interesting. I also think that, okay, so he talks about our craving for immortality. And mm-hmm. I just think all of Kubrick's works and especially The Shining, part of the reason why he took it was so just, I don't know, it took so much time and put so much thought behind everything. Like It's like he knew that this was his shot at immortality. Like he, I feel like he looks at these films that way. Oh, like totally. I'm putting this out there and if I'm going to put it out there forever, it's going to be perfect. And I think The Shining is such a beautiful exploration of that in a weird way. You know, it's like, it is so dark, but in his way, it's like, I don't know, it almost is hopeful and that this, this movie is going to obviously far outlive him and his impact. So it's such an interesting way to look at the genre. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there, I think. Well, Jed, I mean, I mean, in terms of like iconic ghost stories, you wrote one of the most iconic ones in the last five or 10 years was, were these themes of immortality and the afterlife, you know, were things that you thought about maybe kicked around when you were putting the pen to paper? Yeah, uh, well, me, me and Rob, um, we're just obviously massive encyclopedias of, of horror, and um, we we spent 10 years making shorts, these honing our skills with, with, with shorts, and all, all we want to do is tell ghost stories. That's We're just completely fascinated by it, but I, I don't believe in ghosts, and I feel like that is why I can write about them without fear of reprisal from the said yeah. ghosts. I, I'm not fearful, and, it, and it's weird because in actually tomorrow, I'm um, in about f- five six hours. I'm going to go to the airport, get on a flight to Chicago, to really? stay in. Yeah, to stay. Are in you kidding the, me? That's that's. Wild. I'm not, oh, we could have <laughs> recorded in person. Recorded in person. Yeah. <laughs> are you guys in Chicago? We yeah. are in Chicago. Yeah. Whoa, yeah. nice. Well, I'm going to stay in the Congress in room oh, four four one. Oh my god, that's amazing! Amazing. Room four four one is meant to be the most haunted room in all of Illinois. So, and they, they, they don't rent it out to people because of all the ghosts that's meant to be in this hotel room. But so I emailed them, hey, I'm going to be in Chicago. Can I stay in room 441? They, no, you can't. Said, Please just, just let me stay in. It'll be really cool. And they were like, okay, fine. So I'm going to, I'm going to stay in this, the most haunted room in that, in your state and uh, just see what happens. Um, well, you, um, you, yeah, I'm. Sorry, I go ahead. No, I was gonna say, if you need to borrow a gun, let us know. Too. <laughs> <laughs> all right, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's that is a, that's like I'm, 1408 because he has to literally yes. beg himself to get in there. Um, yeah. That is God. That is so crazy and serendipitous that it would be uh, <laughs> that that you're actually going to be here in Chicago. What a fucking trip in a haunted hotel as well. In a haunted yeah. hotel. Jesus, it's insane. 
so on brand and how that came all together. Well, yeah. we wish you luck on that, and we'll definitely have to keep you Thanks. up to tabs. And hey, just rest. Your, it's, it, you should take a, um, some solace in knowing that we're just down the street if in case anything happens, you know? Um, <laughs> you know, you're like, you're like screaming out the window and it's like, uh, it's like at a 1408, no one's hearing you and stuff, but, um, uh, okay. So what led Kubrick to the shining? So with horror in the mind, Kubrick began scouting stories. And as the story goes, at least according to Stephen King, uh, Kubrick had tasked his staff to bring him stacks of horror books while he shacked up in his office to read them. So it was kind of like, I'm trying, I imagine like a Howard Hughes situation where he's totally. just like sitting there just fucking reading them. Jars of um, urine, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, totally jars of urine, you know? It's like, oh, Stanley, there's a you know, you know bathroom down the hall. But I see um, him like meticulously labeling them as well. Like. Oh, true. Yeah, right? He's like, Different shades of yellow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, yeah. So here's a fun quote that paints the image pretty well. So Kubrick's secretary... Heard the sound of each book hitting the wall as the director flung it into a reject pile after reading the first few pages. Um, so hold on to that image. So in 1977, John Calley, a Warner Brothers executive, had sent Kubrick a manuscript of King's novel. And uh, here's the rest of that, that aforementioned quote. Finally, one day, the secretary noticed it had been a while since she had heard the thud of another writer's work biting the dust. So what sold him? What was the, what was the hook for... Kubrick that said, all right, King, Shining, I'm in. So at the time, Kubrick was fascinated by ESP and psychokinesis, and which he actually believed to a degree um, in, in a really great interview, actually one of the few interviews that he did uh, uh, talking about his own work, because obviously like any of those auteurs back there, you know, like ask David Lynch about it, what his, his movies mean, and he'll you know, throw a knife in your head. Um, so he was the same way, but he did talk about this. He extrapolated on it. And he said that he, you know, he did actually believe in the, uh, the concepts of ESP and psychokinesis. And he talked about how, you know, the behavior of cats and dogs alludes to this, is that there's something there. So it kind of left him with the feeling that he hadn't seen a movie that presented this area, or at least in a proper way, which, you know, viewers could both disbelieve and then also get involved in the story. Um, so here's what he said in The Shining, this, this, the actual novel. He said, it was the first time that I had read to the end a novel that was sent to me with a view to a possible film adaptation. I was absorbed in its reading. And it seemed to me that its plot, ideas, and structure were much more imaginative than usual in the horror genre. I thought that a great movie could come from there. You hear that, Stephen King? See, he still he, he thought it was a great story. So then he expanded on the core of the film and he said, there's something inherently wrong with the human personality. There's an evil side to it. One of the things that horror stories can do is to show us the archetypes of the unconscious. We can see the dark side without having to confront it directly. So if you look back on his career, and we don't have to go too deep in it, but if you really do, uh, like kind of even just kind of gloss over you know, some of his titles, Kubrick has really been fascinated by the duality of mankind and, and also just the invention itself. Um, and so there's a writer, uh, Thomas Allen Nelson, he really goes deep into this in his book, uh, Inside of Film Artist Maze. And he says, throughout his career, Kubrick employed psychological doubling in ways that increasingly resembled the twists and ironies of a Nabokovian blend of play and metaphysics. His films repeatedly mixed the grotesque and the banal, the conventions of gothic confessional morbidity and the self-conscious involutions of modernist parody. And and I guess I ask all of you, like having watched a lot of the Kubrick films, and including The Shining, do you agree with this assessment? I and mean, would you say that 
Kubrick wrestled with these concepts from beginning to end in his filmography, specifically the duality concept, because I think that's really one of the big links into all of his works. Yeah. Like, you I, I, I think like with the Nabokov, like, so obviously the writer of Lolita, um, and I, I never really made that comparison, but yeah, the, that book is hilarious. If you ever, I mean, it's awful subject matter, but the, you know, he sees Lolita flirt with a waiter or just smile and he's so devastated and just, you know, everything is a one or a 10 for the guy. And I can see that with Steve or uh, with Kubrick as well. And it's fun to see that he actually really loved the book. I don't know. That makes me happy that he really respected Stephen King's writing. At that um, point. At yeah, that at that point. point. At that I, point you know, exactly. Obviously, yeah. like, it, it became kind of a fraud relationship. Um, but I don't know. That's just got to be so flattering. And I guess, you know, Stephen King has his own issues with Kubrick. But I would just like for a director or an artist like that to respect something that I created, I, I just can't imagine how flattering that would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that's probably why Stephen was like, yes, this is going to be a great experience. And, you know, uh, obviously that went to different uh, wells. But uh, duality in, in, in Kubrick's work, uh, Rachel, where do you see it? Do you see it, uh, you know, through like a Clockwork Orange, even Full Metal Jacket? Um, do you think oh, there's totally. a mathematical process here? I think that there is. And I think it's like an exaggerated duality, right? Like he take, I mean, especially like in Clockwork Orange and stuff on, you know, Alex, but also like what happens to Alex and like just exploring the way, like the worst scenario on both sides, I think. And just, it's, I don't know. I feel like, and especially you see it in The Shining, it's like a part of yourself that you'd be afraid to see realized it's like you know it's there but like how far would you go and I think that you know King obviously in the book talks about this in a lot of different ways and maybe a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more um maybe not quite as dramatic as you know Jack in The Shining but so I don't know it, it makes sense to me that he would connect with this book if that's something that he's already fascinated with and I do think that we see that represented in his films leading up to this point and this just offered him a more horrific and terrifying way to explore it in a way that he hadn't been able to yet yeah yeah jed what do what do you make of this i mean do you and what do you think really hooked him about that duality like i mean that 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 sort of layered approach to uh, even not only just storytelling but even characterization yeah it's difficult to to try and uh get into the mind of kubrick yeah i I feel like (laughs) it's almost impossible um but I think it's I think it's interesting what he did with 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 the characters, and I'm sure we'll go into that in a second. But just just with with um, with with Jack, because I think in the book, like you say, it is more nuanced. There is a, a clear duality from beginning to end. I think he's semi one note in 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 The Shining. He is just bad from start to finish. He has a history of violence, and it, and it continues to do so. So it's interesting. Uh, but again, there's the, the duality between. Um, the, the dynamic in the family as well, I guess. But um, yeah, I, I just think it's a good story and, it, and it's the reason why it's one of King's most popular. I don't think it's just because of the, of the movie. I think it's because it's a well-written family story and he's dealing with, with subjects and themes that we can all kind of relate to. And some of the most horrifying moments in The Shining isn't the blood, isn't the guts, it's the, it's the family dynamics, that, that re- like the domestic abuse and just the way he... Um, talks to his wife is is horrifying um so yeah i think there's a lot of stuff uh, that kubrick can dig into lots of themes they've explored in, in in other movies 
Yeah, I think the the line that sums up his the duality is that in Doctor Strange Love, where he's like, "Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room." Yeah. It's such a yeah. silly contradiction, but he, yeah, throughout all his films, he is pointing out that the flaws with you know these well designed, well intentioned people. Well, it's always that journey, right? It's it's if you look back at you know, two thousand one is the obvious example because I and I'll, I'll talk about it in a in a second here from another quote, but I do think that the the parallel to The Shining at least for me, was when he was approaching the horror genre, he was like, all right, how do I take the talent and tools and, and mindset that I had with 2001 for sci-fi and take it to horror? Because they both have the same sort of duality of man, but also the duality of like sort of universal truth, like not universal truth, so say, but like universal spiritualisms in, in a way. Like if you look at 2001, so much of that is embedded in like the, the root of what mankind is able to produce science-wise, but then also what the universe is bringing to to, to create that sort of synergistic relationship. And ultimately it's the universe that conquers. Um, and I almost feel like that's kind of what he does with the Jack Torrance role here is that, you know, he, he takes this, this man who has a fractured psychological mind and ultimately it's the powers beyond him. The, maybe, maybe they are supernatural. Maybe they're not that, that he succumbs to. And it's, and it's that journey of watching him become, what maybe was always in him from the get-go is is kind of what the I think what really drew in Kubrick yeah. uh, to the story. I, I think too, like he in his film, he dwarfs his cast a lot. I mean, his films are huge, right? Yeah. Even yeah. like Jack is walking around; these are forty-foot ceilings in the Gold Room. You know, it's Tom Cruise walking around the streets of London, pretending it's New York. You know, big parties, clock record. It's just all of his movies have this size that's just so epic. And yeah, two thousand one, mm -hmm. especially with the size of the universe um but it just it makes it so interesting and it almost reminds me of like an orson wells what he would do because they used to yeah. film you know on the studio and they would have like the fake ceilings and stuff and then for citizen kane he was like no i want to have this big room i want to it, it make it feel more natural um so i don't know cooper kind of follows in that tradition and even like with the shining it's there's only one confirmed kill on the whole movie. yeah and you're like this is a horror movie you think there would be so many and you remember it as a very bloody movie obviously because of the elevator blood but there is only one murder that takes place during the course of the film, which is why pretty remarkable because you remember it as like a bunch of bodies. But yeah, and and that murder doesn't even take place in the fucking book. <laughs> so it's like they had to conjure that up. There's a there's a dark cynicism, too, that you see, just like everything Dan was just talking about. Like, yeah, there's this duality of man and like this duality of good versus evil and like, you know, going to the far ends of each and like what that means. But at the end of the, like at the end of the day, just like the over like overtakes Jack, you know, in 2001, like the universe has its own plans. It's like at the end of the day, none of it matters. Yeah. So I think that there's like a really darkly comedic element to his exploration of duality and the fact that we're exploring it at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and again, it's, it's, it's almost like that argument where it's like, it's not the destination, it's the journey that matters in a way, you know, like, cause you know where <laughs> yeah. this is going to go. It's right? the friends like, Jack Torrance made along the way. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about some other friends for Kubrick uh, because Honestly, like, you know, the, the film's relationship to King source material is a, is a, a big part, a sort of a, a source of contention, obviously for Stephen King, but we should probably go into why that happened. So I read you the quote about Kubrick being really positive and enthusiastic about the novel. Well, here's where we start seeing the, uh, the seams come through. So when Kubrick came on, Warner Brothers already had a script in hand by King himself. Um, and not surprisingly, especially after everything we've been discussing involving Kubrick, 
Kubrick was just like, uh, no deal. Um, so <laughs> instead, he connected with novelist Diane Johnson. And by then, Johnson had published a handful of novels, was a frequent contributor to the New York Review of Books. And Kubrick really uh, became hooked on her because of The Shadow Knows, um, which was like a gothic book. And when he found out that she was a doctor of gothic studies at Berkeley, he was like convinced that she was the perfect person for the job. And so the two worked together in England for like three months in 1978. Um, they sat at a large table in a large hall. I think that rings a bell for us imagely, uh, visually. <laughs> um, they both worked separately at first. They were outlining the film and then they would compare the two outlines and discuss each scene. And so this process was repeated two or three times. And here's Kubrick on working with Johnson. When The Shining came up, she seemed like the ideal collaborator, which indeed she proved to be. I had already been working on the treatment of the book prior to her starting, but I hadn't actually begun the screenplay. With The Shining, the problem was to extract the essential plot and to reinvent the sections of the story that were weak. <laughs> All right, so there's one <laughs> ring that King's probably like, okay. So that dismissive tone uh, is really nowhere near as scathing as uh, Johnson, whose interview with Parisian magazine Positive uh, is incredibly damning. So she says, <laughs> this is so mean, uh, among us, The Shining is not a great part of, of, of a great, or is not a part of great literature. It is scary, it is effective, and it works without further ado. But it is precisely interesting to see how a very bad book can also be very effective. It's quite pretentious, but it also is true that one has less scruples when destroying it. One is aware that a great work of art is not being destroyed. Ouch. Which, so mean. Like, so fucking cool. Wow. So you can kind of see why King doesn't exactly look, uh, you know, fondly. There's like seven production. insults. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's. So I guess there's something to be said for you know s stabbing you in the front, but yeah. Jesus. <laughs> so here's the thing that's crazy. So I've read one of Kubrick's earliest treatments for The Shining, and um, in our I think for the tw the twentieth anniversary, or 20th anniversary. Yeah, right, Mike. Fortieth anniversary. <laughs> I was doing. I did a breakdown on our Patreon for it, and basically what happens, what's interesting, is that you can kind of see how they're really whittling out like King out of it because early on there's like a number of scenes that are straight from the novel that are in the film like the like omen leaving them on the front porch which is one of the best visuals in the book is on is in there there's multiple flashbacks to like jack at school there's uh there's no wasp nest which is a really big part of the 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 story and also king's upbringing but um the final act is like fucking nuts like they it goes all over the place like at one point i, I think that's like like wendy stabs like halloran because halloran gets like uh halloran actually gets like um taken over kind of like like at the ending of dr sleep and so it stabs her and then like she escaped it, it's it's all over the place so honestly the fact that they did do the whittling down probably worked to its favor but here's the thing i'm not really interested in talking about King's thoughts on the movie because I think we all know why he didn't like it. I mean, that ultimately is, is exactly what Jed had said before, um, which is that, you know, he felt the crux of the story was dismissed, the arc of Jack, you know? He's, and this is what he said. He said, uh, King, this is what King says on the movie. I think The Shining is a beautiful film and it looks terrific. And as I've said before, it's like a big, beautiful Cadillac with no engine inside it. In that sense, when it opened, a lot of the reviews weren't very favorable. And I was one of those reviewers. I kept my mouth shut at the time, but I didn't care for it much. And then he added, the movie has no heart. There's no center to the picture. I wrote the book as a tragedy. And if it was a tragedy, it was because all the people loved each other. Here, it seems there's no tragedy because there's nothing to be lost. Um, 
And and here's the thing, like, despite all this trivia about how much he hates the movie, he still respects Kubrick because, I mean, who couldn't respect Kubrick? So he said, I met Kubrick and there's no question he's a terrifically smart guy. He's made some of the movies that meant a lot to me. Dr. Strangelove, for one, Pass the Glory, for another. I think he did some terrific things, but boy, was he a really insular man. In a sense that when you met him and when you talked to him, he was able to interact in a perfectly normal way. And you never felt like he was all the way there. He was inside himself. And I, I really think that, like, that, that sort of introspection from king there about how introspective uh you know kubrick was really says a lot about not only just like i think his work ethic but also just his characters in movies i don't know if like if that's too much of a hot take or or whatever you know like they all seem like insular protagonists all the time right well and it seems like i mean the characters are almost secondary right like they're just vessels to kind of have these incredible visuals and Mm -hmm. these themes and everything but it kind of the characters themselves aren't always the focus where I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I always felt like that was King's biggest thing. Cause this novel is so, it feels so personal to him and was like really exploring some really personal things and Kubrick kind of sidelined that a little bit. And I, I get it. Like I love the film, but I can see why that conflict would arise because yeah, these characters do feel really insular and of themselves and you don't really get to explore everything that they have to offer. Yeah. It, yeah. The, oh, go ahead, Jen. Uh, I was going to say, like, what one of the the kind of only criticisms of uh, Kubrick's uh, The Shining is specifically the character of Wendy, which is very much one-dimensional, helpless damsel in, in distress, where she isn't that in 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 the book. In fact, even with the casting, he, Kubrick made an effort to go against what the what she was like in yeah. the book um and yeah she but i mean i love shelly duval I, th- I think she's incredible um but she's kind of playing olive oil here like she did popeye she's kind of playing that character again and um i mean it, it's still an incredible performance and, and the film is still incredible but i'd l- I'd love to see what would happen if the shining was made now and maybe we'll talk about this later yeah um, oh, what, totally. w- what that final girl would look like right now that'd be interesting yeah, oh, just, well, in terms of Kubrick too being insular, um, so there's a good documentary. There's actually two documentaries about assistants that worked for Kubrick. Um, and the one I really like is the S is for Stanley. Um, he had oh, this I like Italian personal assistant, and mm-hmm. you could just see that as close as they were, there was always a little bit of a distance, right? And his assistant even said, like, not until I retired did I ever watch one of his movies. Um, and and he's writing letters to Stanley, and Stanley's like, oh, did you like him? And he's like. Yeah, I really like Spartacus, and that's Stanley Kubrick hates that. <laughs> like because he kind of took over the direction, so it's not really a yeah, yeah, it's not really a Kubrick movie. film. Um, but even like, and you know, he was there for like when the people had children. He was always a, a good guy, but there was even a distance to the people that were closest to him. Like I couldn't imagine having Kubrick as a father. Um, you know, Vivian does that making of the Shining movie, and you wonder if this is her. I don't know anything about their relationship, but it's I can only imagine that try to get your dad's attention by making a movie about him, right? So so I can see how King and him would butt heads. But I do like that there's the respect for each other professionally, at least uh, from King's perspective. And I mean, Kubrick does seem like, a we were saying like a bored genius, but also like a mad genius, right? Yeah. I I don't think people like him function in normal society very well well it's it's like it's like the movie heat and i bring that movie up all the time because it's one of my favorite films but i think there's a great 
point to this is that in heat, you have two people that are cut from the same cloth, but they're on the opposite side of the coin, right? And I feel like that's the same thing with King and Kubrick here because they both are workaholics. Like they both are masters of their craft. Like, I mean, fuck, we just finished on writing um, the book episodes and you know, we talk at great lengths about how King is a workman like ethic, has a workman like ethic. And like, he really demands that you want to sit at the desk, get the work done. And that's the same thing with Kubrick. But I do think that spiritually, the differences of them is, is ultimately more interesting to me than, you know, whether or not so-and-so liked the movie or not. Because I think that's one of the, that's where you get to like the reasoning why there's this split there in the first place. And I think here's, here's the thing that we, we already kind of, you already kind of talked about it, uh, Rachel, about the call. And that call, I think is really important to talk about how, you know, why the movies are so different, why they're so disparate. And yeah, the, 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 it's legend at this point, which I guess apparently I always heard that the call took place like three in the morning and he like, you know, it was like Kubrick berating King at like three in the morning and being like, oh, do you believe in gods, uh, Stephen? And uh, and he's just like, no, you know, it doesn't. But then apparently like Spielberg asked him about it and that didn't happen. And he said no, but um, maybe Kubrick was lying to Spielberg. Maybe he was calling uh, in from England, though. And it's just normal. Oh, that is true. Maybe it was actually. He, yeah. He's living there. I mean, I think he's lived there since the late 70s, right? Yeah. 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 So ultimately, it comes down to the fact that basically um, King details a phone call. Kubrick said he thought ghost stories were fundamentally optimistic because they present an existence beyond death. And King countered that by asking Kubrick if he thought hell was optimistic, to which Kubrick bluntly <laughs> said, I don't believe in hell. So I, I think honestly, like that split of per personalities, particularly, you know, in the concepts of like death and the afterlife, and also just again, like introspective versus like introvert versus extrovert because i do feel that like like kubrick was more of an introvert in that sense and, and and king is a little bit more of an extrovert and you can see it in his writing i feel like that really highlights the crossroads between like the source material and the adaptation so i think it's i think it's really important to just kind of i, I don't know highlight all these things because I, I do want to try to make the case that Kubrick does use a little bit more than just the bones of King's work. Am I alone in thinking that? Do, do you think that he, he really does just kind of use the husk of the story? Or do you think there's more? I mean, he gets the elevator pitch, right? It's guys alone with his family, freezing winter, watching a hotel and goes nuts. Yeah, I mean, you know, the I elevator think, think, pitch is there. Yeah, I, I think like the skeleton is there. It's, he's definitely building on that. Um, but then he does, he definitely Frankensteins and brings in his own stuff. Um, but that's just, I don't know. That's what artists do though, right? You're inspired and you're going to be creative. So I don't think you have to stick to things like as a template of like, Oh, can't do that. Can't do that. And I, I appreciate the fact that Kubrick brought in other stuff. Like, I think it's an improvement. I prefer the Kubrick film to the King book. And I love the King book. Well, yeah. the, I, I think the, I mean, Jed, you had outlined or highlighted the, the idea that is not as present as it is or as embellished as it is in the, in the pages. Do you think that, I mean, cause here's the thing I, I want to draw on that is because I feel like where King gets literal on text, I think that Kubrick has always been a little bit more um, impressionistic or like cerebral with it. And here's, here's a quote that I want to bring up just because I think it's really important as to where I think his mind was at. I already compared 2001 to the shining. And this is where I think, I, why I make that connection. So when he's talking about um, the digestion 
process of his films. He says, I don't like to talk about 2001 too much because it's essentially a nonverbal experience. It attempts to communicate more to the subconsciousness and to the feelings than it does to the intellect. I think there's clearly a problem with people who are not paying attention with their eyes. They're listening and they don't get much from listening to this film. Those who won't believe their eyes won't be able to appreciate this film. Now, that quote tied to the fact that and I couldn't confirm this other than beyond IMDb trivia. And as we all know, IMDb trivia is a fucking <laughs> joke. But I have heard this other where, in other places that he did screen Eraserhead for everyone on set to kind of set the mood. Now, that movie, similar to 2001, is all is, is pretty silent. It's, a, it's like watching a silent movie. And I'm wondering, and I say all this to make the point and ask and, and you know, bring it to the floor, do you see the, the the fundamentals and even more meat on the bone of King's work in this movie if you see it as more of like a silent film or where the themes are a little more embedded as opposed to literally expressed as they are in, in the pages and the arc and the narrative that we see in, in King? Well, because film is a visual medium, you, you can you can summarize 10 pages from a book in, in, in one image of, of like the, the lifts like and then the blood coming out of the elevators um and yeah and, and the subtext and there's things you could do with with music and sound design um so you could you can you can say a lot without saying it in in in, in film and I, I just think originally because of the the bad reviews when it when it first came out or the kind of mixed reviews i think uh king w- was a little bit salty and and was just wanted just to rail rail against it, but like I, I'm sure it's it's helped out King now. I'm I'm sure he appreciates what what, what Kubrick did now, and I think watching it in in, in hindsight and watch and, and reading the book and actually I uh, listened to the audio book, 15 hours of the audio book, oh, uh, just to just to see what what kind of vibe that would give, and I I, I do think even though the audio book is literally just the just someone reading out the the text the sound design was very inspired by Kubrick. So it's kind of like a snake in itself. And um, so I, I think there's a lot that can be done without saying it in, in, in a form of like sound design and, and subtlety and, and images. And I'm all about that. Well, and you think about like in the film, I mean, like the ghosts, right? Like I don't, they don't ever like talk about them. Mm-hmm. It's never like a conversation, but you see them. And so like you're getting these hints of the story, not by what you're hearing or what, you know, exposition dump or anything like you're just getting it through visuals and you have to put the pieces together. Yeah. Yeah, And that's the thing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's weird because it's even Kubrick admits it is at at one point in, in one of his interviews, he talks about how like, well, we all do stay on the fence about it, but then how does Jack get out of that closet, you know, like, or the, you know, the, the, the pantry refrigerator. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's kind of leads the question where you're like, ultimately I feel like the, the film does lean on it, but I still think you could make the case that it's all sort of, you know, up in the air, which is not the case. Like, well, I guess in the book, it's kind of also dubious as well, you know, like you, yeah. Well, in, in the book, I, I'm pretty sure like it, it does say like a ghost opens the the, the, the door. But there, there, there's a couple of things that you could do. You could just say because the shining and because we don't exactly know the rules of what what having this shine is, they're meant to be um, able to see the future and and different times. So so maybe it's not ghosts. It, it's just you're seeing into the past or, or to the future. But also there's the theory. I don't know if you you guys 
read this, but that Jack Torrance has the Shining as well. Mm-hmm. So he's able to to move things around and he has psychokinetic power. So that's how he opened the, the door. And I think that's yeah. kind of interesting. And it's also, it would kind of make sense if if his son has mm-hmm. it. Why does- yeah. Well, because they already yeah. mentioned that the grandmother and Dick Holleran yes. could have conversations. So there does seem to be some lineage of passing it. Um, but I just on the, in terms of like the eraser head thing, I think that's so interesting because you could watch the shining on mute mm-hmm. and just appreciate, you know, the, the symmetry of the images. And I think it's worth noting that, you know, Kubrick was a photographer for the early part of his life. So I think some mm-hmm. of the, image, like you could pause almost any scene of the shining and just appreciate the beauty of how it's staged and it, you can appreciate it as a still film in a lot of ways, even, you know, quiet. Oh, hundred percent. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, like I say to, oh, go ahead. No, go for it. Go for it. No, I was just gonna say just with David Lynch too, that's gotta be such a pat on the back to be like, wow, an artist like Kubrick was inspired by my film, you know, he was watching that what just, film? Um, I get yeah. to see <laughs> Stanley get my cigarettes. Uh, tell Mel to send him a copy of elephant man. Um, God. Anyway. Um, well, I, I, I agree that you could watch this movie on mute, but it would be such a detriment because, and this is a seg, I'm going to throw it over to Rachel, uh, because you would be missing out on so much of the beautiful music that's uh, you know involved in this film. If you're if Kubrick is a top filmmaker of yours, odds are you probably know a lot of classical artists because you know like Michael Mann and so many auteurs, including David Lynch. Even the composer seemingly eluded him. He was mostly like scrapbooks or you know um, the, the the real soundtrack. So um, Rachel, one of my earliest memories of meeting you was learning you had a copy of The Shining on vinyl. So I'm just going to give the floor to you to talk about the music aspect of this because it's a little like anything else involving this fucking movie. It's incredibly labyrinthian. I'm just going to keep using that word because the best way to describe everything about this movie. So yeah, if you want to give like a rundown of some of the music here, because it's pretty interesting, like especially just the the range of talent that's involved. Yeah, of course. You know, so, you know, before we, you know, venture into this lobby, this lobby of the Overlook, I do think it's important to kind of discuss the winding road that got us here, right? And you touched a little bit about uh, Wendy, Carlos, and Kubrick's relationship and that they had worked on Clockwork Orange together. And so I'd love to just give a little background on Wendy because she's incredible. She's an incredibly influential artist and she's a very reclusive artist. So there's not a lot out there about her, but she's she's amazing. Um, so she had long been fascinated with um, electronic um, electronics, I guess, and music and the intersection of the two ever since she was a kid, won a science, con- won a science contest at 14 by making a computer, which I think is wild. And when she went to college, she studied both music and physics. And that's where she met Robert Moog um, at Columbia. And they actually collaborated together. And she really helped him develop his now infamous synthesizer rig. And she had a lot to do with actual practical things like pitch sliding controls and sound filter banks and the touch sensitive keyboard and things that would actually make it useful for a musician to use. So she was huge there. But where I think she really intersected with Kubrick was, um, so in 1968, she released an album called Switched on Bach which was gigantic. <laughs> there was the second classical album ever to go platinum, which is wild. <laughs> and that was, yeah, which was um, thanks to her friend, Rachel Elkind. 
And they were friends and collaborators. And Rachel Elkind at the time was working um, as a secretary to Columbia Records boss, Goddard Lieberson, who just sounds like a Columbia Records <laughs> yeah. boss. And he had this marketing idea called Bach to Rock, but didn't really have anything to like back it up. He wanted to do this whole campaign of like, you know, basically beefing up their classical catalog, but didn't have an, a way to unite it with rock music. And so Rachel's like, well, I have an idea and came up with this idea for her friend to make this album of classical music on synthesizers. And it was huge. And it really like brought this technology to the mainstream. And there's there's a lot of mixed feelings about this album. There's a really incredible documentary called Sisters with Transistors. If anybody's interested in learning more about the history of electronic music and particularly women in electronic music and why maybe this Switched on Bach um, album has some mixed feelings within the community during this time, but super interesting, but that's a whole other tangent. <laughs> um, but so Kubrick, where she intersects with Kubrick, you look at like 2001, right? And this is such an interesting film for him musically because he, the story goes, he hired uh, Alex North, who also worked with him on Spartacus. And Alex North is a dude in the composing world, right? He did Cleopatra, Long Hot Summer. So he hired him for 2001. He made this whole score and then Kubrick scrapped it. Classic Kubrick. And did yeah. not tell, <laughs> didn't tell Alex North. So Alex shows up to the film premiere and you know the screen comes on and what starts playing? not his music <laughs> <laughs> you know so he just like is like okay what the hell and so there's a bunch of Richard Strauss music Leggetti music Johann Strauss music all this contemporary classical music that was really progressive and played with atonality dissonance not what Alex North was doing this was a big deal because at the time you just didn't do this and I have a really interesting quote from Bernard Herrmann, um, who, of course, did Psycho, you know, Taxi Driver, Citizen Kane. I don't know. You heard of it? Yeah, I think he's kind but, of someone in the industry. Or yeah, he was. you yeah, might have heard yeah, of he him. He seems like a, yeah. <laughs> but so he did this quote after 2001 came out. And he says, it shows vulgarity when a director uses music previously composed, exclamation mark. Um, I think that 2001 A Space Odyssey is the height of vulgarity in our time to have outer space accompanied by the blue Danube and the piece not even recorded anew. Like, I don't know, that's just like the nerdiest, most. Oh man, I would love to <laughs> like, see his thoughts on rap music, like sampling. Yeah, but <laughs> vulgarity. Like, you know, it's just vulgar to use pre-recorded music but he's so I, salty yeah he's right? so yeah. salty but i think really it's just like what kubrick was saying is like i don't need you kind of and i think that this was really kind of threatening to the way things were done right and so when it gets to clockwork orange time Wendy Carlos, at the time, she was actually working on a piece of music called Time Steps. And at the time she was reading a book um, and that book was Clockwork Orange and it was really influencing her work. So when she found out that Kubrick was making a film about this and already kind of knowing his penchant for classical music, she was like, um, hey, I think we should work together. Like, I think we can offer each other something here. And Kubrick was like, I think you're right. Let's do this. So she started working with him on Clockwork Orange and ended up doing like um, that very first scene in Clockwork Orange where, uh, yeah, so 
when we the, the credits oh, the Krova milk and, bar and everything yeah the Krova oh, milk bar yeah, so she did band. a synthesized version of henry purcell's funeral of queen mary so that's what she did and then also did some other some other cues and stuff but really what it did and i think is so interesting and i think kind of paved the way for the shining is it, it was it, it it made a formative platform it gave a formative soundscape to clockwork orange and kind of this uncanny valley feeling where it's like this is our world but it's not and we see that brought into the shining i think as well because when they work together on the shining he initially i guess hired her to do a whole score and then in bad territory for anyone getting yeah. involved with Kubrick. i know <laughs> yeah but i i also think that at this point, Carlos, after working with him once, kind of knew what she was in for and like knowing his past with, you know, 2001. And she seemed pretty easygoing about it and understanding the craft behind it, which I think is why they look like to work together. I also think that there's a really sweet interview. Um, well, not sweet interview, but there's a sweet quote <laughs> that she talks about um, in Playboy, where she talks about um, working with him on Clockwork Orange. Because during this time, this is when uh, Wendy was really publicly trans transitioning and Kubrick never talked about it with her like they spent a lot of time together he never brought it up he never mentioned it he just let her be herself and work together and respected her as an artist and she said basically in the interview that she thought I could just sit here naked in front of Kubrick and he wouldn't have said anything because he was just so focused on the work and didn't care about anything else and so I think that there I don't know there's a she liked working with him because she could just be an artist and not have that be an issue. And so when, you know, came time, he approached her for the shining. She was like, yeah, let's do this again. And so during post-production, they did switch it up and he um, used a lot of classical music yet again. But as far as what Carlos was doing, she did the opening sequence, which is just infamous, right? The Shining theme, yeah. which is a reimagined version of Berlioz's Dies Irae, which is also known as uh, Day of Wrath. It's a segment from his Symphony Fantastiques uh, piece. And it's so funny because I meet a lot of people who hear this music, that, that chord progression, right? Those really low synthetic notes where the car is like winding up the hill and everybody thinks that's, oh, that's the Shining music. And it's just wild that it's like transcended its original origins yeah. and is now associated with The Shining when it is like a really famous classical piece. And you see it like in, there's bits of it in like Poltergeist score, yep. you know, Jerry Goldsmith score. And you see a lot of horror composers after The Shining dip into that well. And I think that's just so fascinating. It's, it's kind of interesting too, because I feel like uh, out of all the genres, I feel like horror dips into the well so often and brings and reprises themes like think about the stings and psycho we talked about bernard yeah. herman just now like one of my biggest grievances with De palma is well first off i just, I just think De palma is too obsessed with hitchcock sometimes but like <laughs> the, the the part in carrie it like almost takes me out of the movie because he uses literally the stings from psycho and yeah. but that's but you you but you hear that everywhere else i mean it's been in other movies too i just don't know i mean i guess you could make the case for like action movies sometimes they they reuse scores i mean fuck scream well actually i'm going back to horror again because scream uses the broken arrow theme but i <laughs> all i'm saying is i do think that there's a circulation of this sometimes but i th this theme itself is so interesting how it transcended and you can make the argument with the blue danube that 
like the first thing anyone thinks about is 2001 also now like that's it oh like totally that, it's, it's, which mm -hmm. is hey that's kind of emblematic of kubrick in itself it's kind of a it's a power move <laughs> you know? it's a total power move and it's like recontextualizing these pieces and you know a lot of these composers carlos herself included were really pushing the boundaries of what music was and what sound was and i think that really translates into what kubrick was doing with film as well i mean nothing kubrick ever does is on accident right and that really speaks to the music he chose to it spoke to him having carlos involved it's it spoke to having all these particular composers involved like he knew exactly what he was doing and what these pieces had to say and it, i think it was just such a smart way of doing that and uh i guess i could just talk a little bit about some of the actual composers we don't have to go too crazy but um so in the shining uh there's penderecki there's bella bartok and there's Ligeti, are kind of the classical composers that he used. And all three of these composers were really, you know, just like I said, pushing the boundaries of their genres and exploring sound in this way. There's actually, it's funny, there's a quote by Penderecki. He says, all I'm interested in is liberating sound beyond all tradition. And that really, I mean, I feel like that's what Kubrick was trying to do too, like totally. liberating film from tradition and like just doing whatever he wanted to do. And these pieces, you know, there was, there's some that Carlos kind of reinterpreted and used, but they're, they're giant pieces. Some of these pieces are half hour long, 45 minutes long. And so really the, the parts that we're hearing are just little snippets and really selectively chosen on purpose. And the person that did that was Gordon Stainforth, who was the music editor, who I don't think gets enough credit ever for his contributions to the music in The Shining. Yeah. Because while yeah, Kubrick, heard yeah, yeah. So he's a super interesting guy. So he worked on Kroll, the classic Kroll. Kroll, <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. And also on Legend and Neverending Story. And he, so as a music editor, Kubrick basically told him like, these are the composers I want to use. You find the pieces. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, that's my Kubrick, I guess. That's a good Kubrick. It's not bad. <laughs> and so he left it to Stainforth to like, you know, cull these like gigantic composers catalog and find what pieces were going to work with the film. And he did all this after the film had wrapped, right? So he had six weeks, I guess, from the time they wrapped to the film's release to find all this music. And so he went through the selections and they would go back and forth and, you know, Kubrick would say yes, no, along the right path or whatever. But it was really Stainforth who picked these, basically everything you hear after they reach the overlook, basically, because that's kind of where Carlos's music ends and all the classical pieces take over. And it's just... It's wild. There's some pictures online that you can look at of his music editing and how like very incredibly specific it is like matched with the dialogue and where these things fall. And it's just insane. So I actually thought it was really interesting. I found a quote from Stainforth and he talked about how the most difficult scene was actually where Jack and Grady are in the bathroom and how he had to Kubrick wanted basically the music from the ballroom right so they're in the red bathroom and they're talking and it's a really like a pivotal conversation oh, so totally. you really have to yeah. hear what they're saying but Kubrick also wanted the music from the ballroom to be really present so what Stainforth had to do was edit 
these this music that um, is from Henry Hall and the Glen Eagles Hotel Band is what it, the, the artist that kind of that 1930s piece and had to edit it so that the dialogue from the music was like juxtaposed with the dialogue from Jack and Grady so that the words were falling in between jesus christ and and also (laughs) like say something i guess so there's like a counterpoint of like what the music is saying and what like jack and grady are talking about and that is just that's like that's a whole other level of editing that i don't think it could so easily just become background music but now it's like i have to go back and watch this scene again because apparently there's like a whole thing and kubrick kept wanting to go back and say like he was kept saying like the music has to be louder. The music has to be louder. Like I want to hear the words of the song properly. So it's just little things like that. And then there's a funny conversation he had where, you know, Jack's chopping down the door and uh, Kubrick said, you got to beef it up, Gordon. And he said, how Stanley, I've used all the most dramatic stuff I can find in the whole of Penderecki. And he says, just lay two pieces on top of each other. (laughs) Stainforth is like, but we can't do that. What will the musicologists say? And Kubrick's like, oh, they'll never notice. And amazingly, he was right. Uh, Stainforth says, well, certainly I never heard or read any comments about the liberties we took. So not only is he using like Penderecki's music, he's literally laying like two segments on top of each other to really like make it sound more chaotic and wilder. And yeah, so you try shazamming a lot of this stuff and it doesn't come up with anything because Stainforth was actually like just making stuff up with classical music so, so it's like, i don't know it's it's, well, it's, like it's no wild. wonder like warner brothers hasn't really ever like reissued this because i remember like you dr can't. sleep came out and it was like why don't we get a fucking reissue of you know the newton brothers score with like this and then like no you can't because yeah exactly like it's it's a it, i can't even imagine the fucking like i mean i guess a lot of this stuff is probably entering public domain soon i mean it's, it's been that long but I can't. I can't even imagine like the, the 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 legal mumbo jumbo that would go into like, oh, um, can you like figure out that we can get the rights to the six fucking tracks that are all in one thing in the, this one scene? <laughs> like, yeah. No, I, yeah. like, I distinctly remember watching it in college with a friend who had never seen it, and at one point with like the violin screeching, and she just goes, "Jesus Christ!" And you could just see like the music just like shook her. Um, and I think what cool too is. The music that's used, because I was doing a little bit of music research also, and uh, I think it's Bartok's. It's called Music for Strings, Percussion, and a Celestia. Yeah. And it actually, the music is a palindrome. So it actually oh, repeats wow. the notes by the end of it, which plays again to Kubrick's use of like twinning and duality. It's just, it, it, I don't know, just every decision he made, I feel like just kept getting better and better. Oh, yeah. And that's the the music that's used like in the scene where Jack and Danny are having the conversation. So there's a really interesting like back and forth, you know, so you think about it even deeper. And it's like, what do you know? No, wait, but what do you know? And like them trying to like figure each other out in that scene a little bit. And so the music, yeah, see, just like you were talking about, it's like the music just mirrors that whole, like that repetition and the circular, the cyclical nature of like what's happening in the overlook, right? Like it's so, you could Keyword, because the the mirror is a big integral part of that scene also. I mean, this is why the movie Room 237 exists because it's like, (laughs) you know, like how do you not like go down these fucking deep, deep dives and these tunnels of just like, like oh well actually uh Cooper 
look uh, if you look at the numbers here, do not disturb equal two thirty seven. Uh, when you look at the, num- <laughs> it's just like yeah, like no wonder there are fucking people. Like this movie was made for Reddit before they knew what Reddit <laughs> was. You know, oh totally. Are you, uh, room two three seven, um, kind of conspiracy theories. Are you are you into that? I, I well, have a whole section on <laughs> Why don't you just go into some of the ones that they're actually? Because look, if we went over like all of them, it would be it would, it, this would be again a limited series podcast, which we're not. Yeah. <laughs> this is a one episode, and Jed's got to get on a plane in a little bit, so we got to make sure we get this. It's all good. It's that, just making sure because I feel uh, I, I know that oh, there's a no. lot going on here. But Dan, you you went through a lot of first off. Amazing work, Rachel, on the on yeah, the, that was the music awesome. history there. That's- there. There's so much. Like for anybody who's interested in it, like this is seriously a rabbit hole to go down, and it's fascinating because there's so much. And you know, Wendy Carlos in and of herself, yeah, there's not a lot of stuff out there, but she's got some incredible music. So I highly encourage anybody that's interested, like dig in. Yeah, and it's a great, it's a great fucking score. I, I will say. Um, or not score soundtrack. Um, I know Mondo released like a two track. I think it's two track or four track. I can't remember what it is, but uh, a forty five that had a, a a few of them, uh, especially all of um, uh, Wendy's music. And I, I'm a huge fan of Rocky Mountains. I think that 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 track is just phenomenal. I I write to that track all the time. It's it's really great. So seek it out. Um, but you mentioned going in a deep dive and a deep into the rabbit hole of music. And Jed just mentioned the 237. So we have to, I have to lateral pass this over to Fleer because you did pull some of the better theories, at least the ones that we could kind of chew on a little bit and go, mm, maybe there's some weight there. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I won't do them all. And, you know, I specifically wanted to get beyond 237 because I think most people are pretty familiar with some of those. Um, so his film critic, uh, Rob Ager, he's actually a British, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, A G E R. Um, and he has some really interesting theories. So I'll just kick him off. Uh, so one thing that I had not really thought about, you know, we always think of the Native American presence, right? There's no Native Americans in the film, yet their presence is felt everywhere, which is sort of, you know, the original sin in America, right, is the original genocide when we took over. So I think that's interesting that they made the gold room. Um, originally, it was a silver room. The guys literally had to hammer up those little silver tiles, and then Kubrick decided to change it to a gold room. And they were like, this is going to take days to change. And he's like, I don't care. Like, it's it's got to be gold. Um, so there's a lot that goes into the history of U.S. banking in that room. So, you know, America used to have the gold standard, right? Every dollar had to be represented by an equal amount of gold. But we switched off of that. And when you notice in the gold room, they're always talking like business and transaction. You know, I've got this money in my wallet. Is my credit good in this joint? No, so your money's no good here. And it's kind of funny because he pulls out a the dollar that he pulls out is from 1950. So by then dollars were no longer convertible into gold. So when he literally says like your money is no good here, it's a little bit of a reference to that. Um, and there's also in my mind. I know it's, this is crazy. <laughs> ridiculous. Mike and I were watching it last week and I was just like, I've been watching so many deep dive YouTube videos. Um, and also on the walls, there's a lot of, you know, the best people, right? There's a lot of photos of politicians and some of the ones that are up there um, like president Wilson he was responsible for passing some of these major banking reforms. Just a little hint at the gold room. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but I have I mean, a lot of thoughts. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's one of those things. I, I mean, one of the books I read that I referenced before was like the inside of film artist maze. 
And there are points where I like literally kind of had to stop myself and be like, all right, you are going to lose your fucking mind if you continue to keep going down this road, this road, like you need to stop. And it is so, there's an obsessive quality to it, which is, I mean, we'll talk more about it, obviously, with just as we're going, but that is quickly. Do you you think, because we have bought into the notion that Kubrick is uh, a, a genius and every single thing is thought of and planned out. Do you, do you not think sometimes he just does something because he just likes the look of it and then we apply our own kind of uh, like backwards thinking oh, into making it oh yeah he sure. he designed it because of this reason where he's just sitting there well obviously he can't do any but but he was sitting there going i can't believe they fell for this it, <laughs> when i just just blagged it well, it's yes. like you, uh, freudian <laughs> term that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar right Exactly. And and you can you can tell sometimes he just blagged it because when you see his daughters making of the shining, he's just coming up with things on the fly. Like he's so you know he, everything isn't planned out to the nth degree Wayne a lot of it is obviously, but like some things are just like on spur of the moment. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting too with the making of because you do see he's constantly rewriting the scripts and Jack Nicholson at one point just makes a point like, well, I guess we're just going to make it up as we go. And you see like Kubrick's assistant being like, oh God, don't let Stanley hear that. Yeah. He'll be so mad. He even says he doesn't bother reading the scripts because like it, 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 just, it just turns up and on the day and just, just reads on the day. Well, here's <laughs> one. Uh, no segue to this horrible, but I a trigger warning for anyone out there. So, oh God! Before you go to that, I have I do have a point to make on that because I, I think it, it's it's a because I know exactly what you're going to, and this is this you were telling me this last week when the gummy bear was coming in, and I was like, all right, you need to stop. Um, <laughs> but um, the I do think that there's an interesting catch twenty two to it because I feel like his his sort of um, meticulousness like opens that up, and and I don't think, and I wonder if like Kubrick, I mentioned you know read it before, but I wonder if Kubrick knew the type of world we were going to have. If he knew that, like, you are literally, like, just feeding a buffet for, like, conspiratists that, like, come on and just piece and just take your things out of piecemeal. Because ultimately, most of the time, it does come down to exactly what you just said, Jed. Like, I mean, I think of, I referenced Lynch before, but one of my favorite things ever, uh, the anecdotes about him is that, you know, everyone always think like, oh, what does he mean here? You know, oh, it, he put a release date out. Oh, there's a balloon that's floating over a fence. Like, does that mean something? And it's like, well, no, usually the times it's just something that he thinks is aesthetically pleasing. And the be- the best anecdotal evidence of this is the big poem, which is the fire where Fire Walk With Me came from for Twin Peaks. He literally, they literally didn't have a poem and they're on set and they're like, all right, uh, David, we need something here. You know, we're supposed to have a, it says in the script, there's a poem that needs... And he's like, ah, give me a second. And he like went away and he came back and he came with a, uh, with a poem. And like, that is now like what most Twin Peaks fans like use is like the blueprint for everything. And it's like, no, he came up with it in like fucking 10 minutes, like on set. Like it has no, there's no depth further to that. Like, I mean, maybe you can kind of make some thematic links and stuff, but most of the time it's just, you know, it's there for the sake of fulfilling what needs to be done. And you can kind of, I don't know. But yeah. then again... But the idea could also kick around other... in their head for, you know, he might have just come up with the poem on the spot, but he also might have been thinking about it for years, you know, yeah, creative Yeah, that's type. true. Ex- well, exactly. And this is this is how things like QAnon exist. Like, it's just, it's just <laughs> you know, you literally are like, well, uh, wait a second. You know, he did do the music Mike, in the bathroom Mike, you like need this. to wake up. Yeah. You know, I'm just, stop being, I'm just a, saying, stop being is... a sheeple. I am um, a sheep. You know, look, well, actually, can, of, I, can we wrap this up? I need to go re- listen to Joe Rogan. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, just... But speaking of sheeple, um, so the famous bear scene, uh, mm. there's a theory that 
a lot of the abuse is actually sexual abuse between Jack and Danny. So there's some evidence to support this theory. So obviously you have in the book, there's a guy who dresses as a dog and has a relationship with the hotel owner. Um, obviously in this, it's changed to a bear. But bears appear throughout the movie in the background. In the beginning, when Danny's being examined by the doctor, he's laying in bed in his underwear, very tight. His hands are over his genitals, and he's laying on a bear pillow. And someone actually found the pillow that was used, and it's been manipulated by Kubrick. He actually replaced the eyes to make them look scarier. So it's the 70s children's pillow. And whenever bears come up, there starts to hint at abuse. And if you remember, she's like, what, you know, what, who's Tony? The boy lives in my mouth and goes in my stomach. And he's like, I don't want to talk about that anymore, which kind of plays to this PTSD. So anyway, if you go to in the beginning when Jack is doing the interview, he's in the lobby. He's actually reading a Playgirl magazine, which is weird because that would be naked men. You'd think he'd be reading a Playboy. And when they actually zoom in on the cover, the exact article says incest, why parents sleep with their children. It's so fucking crazy. Just so yeah. strange. Mm. Um, so obviously we have that. Then when you go to the Overlook, when they're touring the apartment, uh, Jack peeks into a room that ends up becoming Danny's and it's almost this weird little look and there's a framed picture of a papa bear and a baby bear over his bed. And obviously the scene you were talking about earlier, uh, Rachel, they call it the fatherly love scene when he's like, come here, Danny. And he sits him on oh, his lap yeah. and that, there's just like this very strange. God, you did the whole breakdown for this and I just, I had to leave. The yeah, there's so much weird tension there and he's like, you know, I love you so much. And he's like stroking his hair. Um, and he's reluctant to sit on his dad's lap. But, he, you know, he confesses his love to him. And then afterwards, in the later scenes, he's wearing different clothes. And you remember when he comes in choked and Jack's like, I think he did it to himself. There's just a lot of these strange. And then even, you know, when Danny goes in room 237 and you, you can only assume what happens between him and that woman. But then when Jack goes in there, you know, it starts out with this passionate embrace. And then it ends up with him being disgusted by what he's done. So there's, you know, whether this is neither here nor there. <laughs> I almost don't know if it has to be like, I agree that it could be like abuse. I just like, I don't know if it has to be even sexual abuse. Like, oh. I mean, obviously the theme of physical abuse is, is there in the book and it's there throughout. Obviously he hurts him. So yeah, no, I, I, I guess I, this is me not wanting to, yeah, I know. No, it's I know. this is what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> I was watching it with Mike and I was like, I, cause I don't a hundred percent agree. These are just some of the theories though, that I, and some of the evidence, um, yeah. On a lighter note, though, let's talk about the dead murdered twins. Um, <laughs> so what's strange is, do you remember it was Mullen in the beginning? He, when he's telling the history, he says, yeah, Grady killed his daughters aged 10 and 8. Yeah. But yeah. in the movie, they're twins. Mm -hmm. But in that making of with Vivian Kubrick, James Mason, who was in Lolita with Kubrick, he brings his daughters to meet them and he introduces his daughters as age 10 and 8. So they're wondering if Kubrick wow. was doing it as a reference to his children. And there's an actually framed picture of James Mason on the wall, which is kind of interesting. King's Dominion also, because he's uh, in Salem's Lot. Yeah. It, it, oh, yeah, before. right. Um, yeah. And then the last one I want to talk about is just the timeline. So you know how this movie has the title cards, right? It's like the interview. Yeah. I, I'm just going to read them because it shows you how wacky they get. Because um, there's no sense of rhythm to them. There, it, it adds to the disorienting nature of the film but the 10 title cards are the interview closing day a month later tuesday thursday saturday monday wednesday 8 a.m 4 p.m it's kind of a strange distribution and kubrick was very precise obviously we've 
kind of hit that fact. But even in his uh, storyboards, he has the timing on the clocks. He wants them exact. So, for example, when they're in the apartment before they go to the Overlook, uh, there's a clock in the kitchen. And if you look at the doctor, her wristwatch matches the time exactly. And before the title cuts to 4 p.m., Wendy goes to confront Jack. It's literally 6.30 on the clock in her apartment. You know, she hits him with the baseball bat, drags him to the freezer. She checks the time, and it's 6.56. And then he says, you know, yeah. go go check out the snowmobile. I got a surprise for you. And she goes, the engine is cut out. Go check it out. And then it cuts to 4 p.m. So you're like, wait, <laughs> so was this, it was 7 o'clock p.m., but now it's 4 p.m.? And also on the time, one last thing that's just for fun. So the final day of the guests being in the Overlook is October 30th. And he, the Mullen indicates, yes, the, yesterday was the last day for guests, which means the movie starts literally on Halloween. Yeah. The check-in would be on Halloween. And they're supposed to be there for six months, but Jack keeps calling it five months. He keeps saying like, oh, five months to relax sounds perfect. He's also been sober for five months. So just... I don't know if there's any significance there, but I thought the timing was just very strange. Um, well, that I, that's that's something that Thomas Allen Nelson gets into in the in the the article I was referencing before. He talks about how Kubrick uses these title cards for not only disorienting um, our sense of time within the hotel, but also even just using like the the tenets of of narrative. Like, you know, oh, it's comforting to have us, uh, you know, knowing like, oh, this is the, the closing day. Oh, this is the the interview. Like, these are basic structures of like narrative. And then as the downward spiral gets even further into, you know, hell, <laughs> it just kind of goes all over the place. And you don't really have that sort of steadier footing that you yeah. had um, previously. And it also kind of ties into um, Jack's own personality and just how what started out as the things that you would even jot down on a ledger to keep order in your own sort of life. He's just, time is not a construct to him anymore because in what Tim um, or Thomas argues is that um, he kind of wants to exist in this like timelessness space because it's free of commitment. It's free of responsibility and it's ultimately free of the past and any of the expectations for the future, which to be fair is kind of a quality or state of life that I think a lot of characters in Kubrick's canon have, you know, where time is just irrelevant at some yeah. point. It, even you know, like the, 2001 is the obvious one, but, you know. Well, even in the bathroom scene when he's talking to Brady, the song that's playing in the background is It's All Forgotten Now, mm -hmm. which yeah. just adds to that. And then the final, this is a real, uh, I don't know, crazy theory, but there's a motif that recurs in Kubrick's work of five and two star or five and two diamonds. So there's in 2001, if you remember, there's during the trip out travel scene, there's five diamonds and two big ones on the edge. And apparently every Kubrick movie has seven diamonds hidden in it somewhere. In Dr. Strangelove, it's in the notes that he's scribbling in Clockwork Orange. The bar that they're at literally has seven wooden diamonds posted. So strange. Um, Barry Lyndon, when they play cards, the card that gets dealt is the seven of diamonds. Um, and in the shining, if you look, there's a, there's multiple instances. I was pointing them out to Mike of, you know, when Jack rounds the hallway, there's seven diamonds on the carpet that's on the wall. When they go in room 237, there's five pillows as, you know, tilted as diamonds on the bed and then two on the chair, chair. uh, the gold room, the ornate sign has seven diamonds. On. It's just this thing that keeps coming and you're like, it doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I think it's just fun to see Kubrick just playing around and dropping this stuff. That's in interesting. There. 
when you when you see the uh, uh, the footage from the land on, first land on the moon, there's seven diamonds uh, on, on the side of the oh, really? spacecraft. <laughs> well, I don't know, oh, really. but that but that would have been great. That, yeah. He'd be tickling like, sad. Do you want to? We got him. Do you want to talk about uh, that, Jed? The uh, the supposed moon landing. I mean, it's ins- it, it's absolutely insane. But like, so, so uh, I haven't watched Room Two Three Seven Two Thirty Seven in, in a while. But it, the the idea is that the um, in all i think it was a bit of a kind of a, a thing where in order for uh kubrick to make 2001 nasa loaned him some some tech right to, to, yeah. to make it as best as it can be and in return he helped them out with them with the, with the moon landings um using back projections um the kind of thing that was covered in in that film capricorn one from was it 81 or 80 at the same same time um where he was meant to fake the moon landings, but it's impossible. The amount of people that would have to be involved in that cover-up is just insane. And uh, apparently, it's it would have been cheap. It would have been it's cheaper to go to the moon than to fake it, basically. <laughs> oh that's, yeah, <laughs> that's that's the uh, that's the overall thing of it. Um, but specifically in in um, in in the Shining, um, and and like I'm going to miss loads of them because I haven't watched it in a while. But um, obviously, T three seven relates to the distance from the Earth to the Moon in, in terms of thousands of kilometers. Um, the moment in the Shining where where Danny's wearing the Apollo eleven uh, sweatshirt sweatshirt and uh, gets up, and it's not it's something about the number of steps to room T three seven as well. And <laughs> it's it's insanity. But I love reading about it and I love talking about it because what if it is true? I what know. if the zero point zero one percent chance it's true just makes the world a, a more fun place to live in that Kubrick fake the moon landings but no he he really didn't <laughs> no I, I mean that's that, and that's honestly like some of the most fun aspects of the shining that I think that we have 40 years later is that it, it, it does kind of warrant these conversations and I think ultimately Kubrick himself is just is just sort of an enigma um especially in this day and age but I I did have a question based on that this is a horror movie this is a scary movie. People consider this to be one of the scariest movies of all time. But have the countless theories and even like the memes. Like, I mean, I can't go on Twitter. I mean, I'm partly to blame for this without seeing some gif of like Jack Torrance or something with The Shining. Do you feel like all of these discussions, all of these, the, the way that this continues to keep navigating through our pop culture lexicon takes away or maybe even to stay on theme, hacks away at the horror of this movie? Is do is this movie less scary 40 years on because of these discussions because of the sort of way it's navigated through or permeated through our pop culture i mean i have watched this film to death and i I watched it again a a couple of days ago in prep for this it's still scary i i think the combination of of everything we've talked about the music the casting um kubrick's changes to, to the king's already great book it just makes it scary and and i find the older i get um the I find different things scary in, in The Shining. When I was a kid, it was it was the the bear man. It was it was the it was the blood. But now it's the domestic violence that scares me, and yeah. just just the, the the family dynamic, which is just like painful to watch. And because he does such a good job at seeding it at the start, like you that like the um you know something bad's going to happen because. It's it's bound to just 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 where, how we set it up. Um, but I, I think the more people see these memes, see um, 
people talk about it, the more people that will watch this movie and get to see an absolute masterpiece. Uh, I'm all for it. Though, officially, the scariest movie of all time is now host. Yes, Uh, it's true. Did you see that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They they, they did those studies. We were surprised. but like, I think it was sinister for a little while and I'm looking forward to see what's, what's next, but it's just whatever's the flavor of the month really, isn't it? Um, but no, that, that, that was cool. To see. Can I just I tell that. you personally, like, okay, I was watching it on my iPad with headphones and my mom called me like halfway <laughs> through it. And my phone was like, you know, next to me and vibrated and it scared me so bad. <laughs> so yeah. you're, that host had one of the most like, scariest moments of my life in recent memory. It's a great yeah. way to watch it on, on a on a on a iPad. I was or, or like laptop. all yeah. in, and then that call came. Yeah, I, I, just, like, I wonder oh. if uh, like Simpsons is ever going to do a parody for the Halloween special. Um, I love because that. that's that's actually oh, one of my yeah. favorite. I guess you could say meme, but the Simpsons parody of the shinning. It's so good, <laughs> and there's so much attention to detail. Even just the way Homer's mm-hmm. hair on top of his head is styled to be like Jack Nicholson. It's just two strands <laughs> of hair, but you're like, oh, he's getting Jack. Um, it, it's one of those movies for sure that even before I saw it, I was familiar with scenes because I had seen it parodied so many times. You know, the here's Johnny line. I, I think that's something that everyone just knows. And it's fun whenever you see a movie with someone who hasn't watched it before. And they're like, oh, that's what that comes from, you know. Um, but But I think, yeah, the domestic violence really... The older you get, the more you're like, wow, this is just so terrible. And the, the line for me is when he says to Wendy, like, now, why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? That's the first time yes. you yeah. really see his sinister side. And you're like, Jesus, like the thought of being trapped with this guy is so terrifying. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's so funny. Like you see you talk about like these memes and everything. And I think that just really speaks to, you know, it, to me, it always speaks to like Jack Nicholson's performance because most often or not, it's him and just like his facial things. And it's really just the physicalness that allows it to be put into a, you know, a meme or a gif or a gif or whatever. But when you see it in context, just like everything you guys are talking about, when you're seeing it in context, like it's still just as scary. Like oh, I never yeah. find myself like watching it and being like, oh, that's that's from you know that's from that meme like it's not as scary anymore like I do think it just brings more attention to it just like you're all saying and then I don't know it it, it almost makes it scarier in a way because if you only know it as like this joke and then you see what it really is it's like oh that's not that so is funny a good point. that's a good point yeah <laughs> it's like that's not funny at all yeah. and I think that was yeah. one of King's issues too was the casting of Jack Nicholson because he had already done the one flew over the cuckoo's nest right um people kind of have it in their mind that yeah, Jack Nicholson is going to go crazy. And that's the thing is King wanted more of a transformation, but I, I love watching. We've referenced it a few times. It's on YouTube, the Vivian Kubrick's making of the shining. And it's very interesting to see Jack behind the scenes. Cause he's very like affable and joking around. And the funny thing is the first thing he says, it's Vivian Kubrick and you know, Jack's such a ladies man. He's like, Oh, you look cute in your red shirt. And like, he has like a <laughs> pin up on the wall of a woman and, it's funny seeing him get into the character too of like swinging the axe and they have like some guy on the crew has to like move out of the way. Like, ah, like, <laughs> yeah, well, he's really playing up to camera, isn't he? With that Vivian. He's like, I'll clean my teeth for you, Vivian. I always do it. Yeah. And I love so that he goes, he goes to Stanley and Stanley's so focused and he's like, yeah, we were just recording this thing in the room. And, and he goes, okay. So anyway, this scene and then Jack's like, <laughs> he looks yeah. at the camera kind of like, okay, all business, Stanley. <laughs> well, we've been talking about Jack Nicholson and I think that's a great sag into our next section that uh, we have called forever on this podcast, Heroes and Villains. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! 
that that first off, that was the longest time we've ever spent uh, talking about the background of a of, of a movie. I, I want to say it's been about we're at about hour and forty five minutes into this, which is pretty uh, phenomenal. But let's get into the, the the cast, and and we don't have to spend too much time because I mean, honestly, it's. It's a it's a small cast. I mean, look, it's an it's an it's a cabin fevered uh, chamber drama. If you really want to get down to it, so there aren't too many uh, personalities here. But we already talked about him, Jack Nicholson. I think when we talk about this cast, though, the running theme is going to be exhaustion. And I think when you look at Kubrick's catalog as a whole, he pretty much just takes the hot the the, the greatest talent of that sort of era and just drains them. <laughs> Like, which is kind of why you rarely ever saw any of the leads return to his work. I mean, with the exception of like Peter Sellers, I think Peter Sellers is really the only lead that ever came back. And even then, the the, the idea of him being a lead is is arguable in in itself. I mean, yeah. So anyway, I, I think he basically his mantra. If I'm getting into Kubrick's head, which we've been trying to play, uh, you know, armchair psychiatrist this entire time, is that. I feel like he just he got everything he wanted and he just moved on. And I and I and I say all this before getting into Jack Nicholson because do we feel that's what he get with Jack Nicholson? Do we feel that if you look at the I'm like I'm thinking of I'm referencing Walden. He's sucking the morrow out of life. I'm thinking of Kubrick. Does he sucking the life out of the the actors? Do we feel that with Jack Nicholson? he was able to do that? Or do we think that Jack Nicholson was such a fucking force and royalty of his own that he that maybe Nicholson is the exception in his entire catalog? Hmm. It's a big question. question. It's, yeah. it's a yeah. big question. I know, yeah, I, yeah. I do think that, I think, I don't know, you guys were talking about this, you know, the documentary and everything, which I've seen. And I do feel like Nicholson understood Kubrick a little bit more than everybody else. So not only did he like know what he was in for, it's like he almost just kind of knew he knew who, who he was working with. And it's like, if you go into a situation a little bit prepared, he just kind of, I don't know. It's almost like he rolled with the punches a little bit better. Yeah, he- And I think sometimes, especially, you know, as we see with some of the other cast members, maybe just weren't quite as prepared for the, <laughs> the tornado that is. Boot camp. Yeah. And the making of, yeah. they talk about, and I think it's a really good insight, but Jack Nicholson says that he'll defer to a director when they have a suggestion for his character, because he's like, I have an idea of how I want to do it. But if I do what I want to do, then my characters are all going to be the same because I'm the one making the decision. Whereas if you go with a suggestion from someone else, it's going to take you out of yourself. So I, I think it's like perfect casting. I, it's one of my favorite performances of all time. And my letterbox end of year things that I watched Jack Nicholson more than any other actor last year. So I'm was, obviously a little biased. He, was he also at this time the most prolific cast member? Like he had the did he have the most experience as far as like filmography and I mean, stuff versus he everybody? Probably else? has to be. I, yeah, you would think oh, so. Easily, right? easily. I mean, I think you could make the the. I mean, Kirk Douglas, <laughs> kind of a big name, I guess, for Kubrick at that time. I mean, you know, even earlier on in that era, I mean, he was still, you know, he was definitely Hollywood royalty. But at that point, I don't think Kubrick was really Kubrick yet. Yeah, I mean, like Paz of Glory, he's getting there, but like at this point, it's kind of oh, this is the Kubrick movie. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you could say Malcolm McDowell, Ryan, or is it, um, oh God, I always forget it. Ryan O'Neill are at the same level as Jack Nicholson coming into The Shining. I think Jack Nicholson, he's coming off of, uh, I mean, just, I mean, at this point, he's probably the biggest fucking star of his generation at that mm-hmm. point, right? I mean, 
he's still removed from like obviously this this stuff what he would do with James L. Brooks in the 80s but like you know he did Chinatown like it's one of my favorites, at that yeah. point already yeah exactly so I, I do wonder like is this the perfect match like I, I think so well there, there's part of me that thinks yeah obviously because you can say on screen it's electrifying but there's also a part of me that thinks when you cast Jack Nicholson you know you, you know what you're going to get you're going to get Jack Nicholson's version of this I wonder if they put uh, a actor in that was a little bit more passive and open to suggestion if it would be a little bit more um, it went alongside what the original character was meant to kind of be and there to be a lot more nuance and a lot more more of an arc than just bang Jack Nicholson's here um, basically playing the Joker <laughs> in, yeah. in this um, <laughs> But and they and they say it in in, in the making of doc um, and again anyone listen to this definitely watch that documentary it's like thirty five minutes on on YouTube, um, but Shelley Duvall says, yeah I was I was very jealous of Jack Nicholson because he got all the attention um, in between takes during takes and like I, I I want attention but Jack Jack takes it all I thought that was really incredibly interesting because yeah. I, I don't think you would get an actor like that saying that on camera now in the behind the scenes documentary no. and I think that's the benefit of having someone unassuming like like Kubrick's daughter holding the camera you feel like you're safe in his family um but yeah, yeah. I feel like this is the era, the last gasp of like fam- family members coming on set <laughs> because like like Coppola has his daughter. It was his daughter, or his wife daughter. that did the, the the documentary for. Oh uh, no, that's yeah, like yeah. Hearts no, and Darkness. That's, uh, yeah, I think it was his wife. Heart of Darkness right? is like, his wife. Yeah. I'm pretty sure every filmmaker after this that saw this in the Kubrick that we were like, all right, that's enough. Yeah. Family's well, off the set. I, I put like, <laughs> if you think of like speaking of family, so when Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman did Eyes Wide Shut you know, they were submitting themselves to Kubrick and he even told them there's no schedule here. Like you're going to yeah, make this movie with me. After and they got divorced. Yeah. It's terrible. But, but <laughs> so they literally sorry. like, he didn't tell them how long the shoot was going to take. He just said, you can't take on any oh. other projects while you're working this with me. So, mm-hmm. and you can, you know, Jack Nicholson for as powerful as he is, I think you need that kind of director. That's just, I'm not impressed with this. You know, this is Kubrick's film at the end of the day. I, I think he's dripping in every scene, even the ones that Jack's kind of stealing. But I do wonder if Kubrick did feel the edge a little bit. Like if he was, it, like, you know, I, I do think, Jed, you have a point. Like if he did have some of those, maybe, I mean, I guess submissive is the word I can think of. That's a little bit more like, okay, yes, just like, like how Malcolm McDowell would be in Clockwork Orange. Cause you hear stories about Malcolm McDowell. Like he literally, one of the, the big takeaways with, um, that had in a lot of the retrospective stuff that was happening recently, I think it was like last year maybe, was he said that, you know, oh yeah, we were really close. And then right afterwards, no, didn't really hear from him ever again i just don't think that's the case with jack nicholson i i, I, yeah. I really I, I think i think it's interesting that that you hear about nicholson saying oh i wouldn't work with him again but i respected it you know big time whereas like i'm sure malcolm mcdowell is probably waiting for the call like i think that's a power move i think that's the inverse right there which makes me wonder like if kubrick maybe would have wanted to work with nicholson again at that point or i, I don't know i just feel like out of all the actors that he worked with even over Kirk Douglas and maybe only Tom Cruise, just because of where Tom Cruise was in 99. I don't, I don't, I just don't see any talent that could go toe to toe with Kubrick like this. And I think that's one of the really interesting things that I, I don't think a lot of people talk about with the shining sometimes is that like you have, I mean, just think about what Nicholson had done leading up to this. Like he'd done Chinatown. He'd done one flew the cuckoo's nest literally only five years beforehand. He's in already five easy pieces, easy rider. I mean, he's, he's a fucking icon. Like, 
I just, I wonder if, I mean, this, and he was the first choice for Kubrick. Like, mm-hmm. even though King wanted Michael Morardi, um, which is John hilarious to think about, or John uh, Voight, which I can't yeah. even imagine John Voight, you know, no. po- po- politics aside right now, I just can't imagine him in this role. But it's, it's just, I don't know. I just think it's the, the dichotomy between Nicholson and Kubrick, two madmen, really, like going against each other. It's, it's fucking perfect for this movie. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, you know, as the saying goes, game respect game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> game recognized. Like, I think game they're too. both. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Game recognized. Up your game. Like, I think they just yeah. really, they both, they're not in competition with each other, but they're both at like the pinnacle of their field. And mm-hmm. so just having that kind of, you know, they can just like nod at each other from across the room and it's like, I got you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why it must have been so hard for Shelley Duval. Like just seeing these these two juggernauts just have this kinship, and then well, and being right in the middle of it, yeah, like playing against Jack Nicholson, getting screamed at by Kubrick, like having that mm-hmm. on both sides, like good God, yeah. And in the making of, well, let's, they, let's, they, we should talk about Shelley Duvall. I was gonna say, <laughs> was gonna say let's talk about Shelley Duvall. Yeah. So at one point, you know, she's smoking a cigarette, and she's like. Stanley, when I went by the window, it, it ripped out like a chunk of my hair. And he looks at this, he goes, a chunk? He kind of like dismisses it. Like, that's not a chunk of hair. Yeah, he grabs a chunk of hair, just like, just throws it away, basically. Yeah. And then he says, don't encourage her to let everyone. <laughs> it's unreal. Like, I can't even fucking imagine that happening right now. Like, there's just no way. You'd hear about it on Twitter within seconds. And then you'd be like, all right, he's been, you know, replaced. Yeah, it's kind of sad because <laughs> like, you, you don't, like, I hear some of those things and I'm like, you know, sometimes method is interesting. I guess this would almost be like method directing, um, but mm-hmm. also it is like it is called acting. And I there was like I think it was Band of Brothers, The Pacific, one of those where one of the actors who was sort of like the reject in the group, he was treated poorly on the set. And then like ten years later, someone was like, "Oh yeah, the director told us to do that to you." And the guy's like, "What the fuck, man? Like that really messed me up." And I feel like she definitely leaves this movie with some battle scars. Yeah, I mean, look, some of the facts here. I mean, she suffered from nervous exhaustion throughout filming. She had physical illness. She had hair loss, as we just mentioned. She later on reflected that she, that he that Kubrick was definitely pushing her to the limits to get the best out of her, and that she admitted that she wouldn't trade the experience for anything. But like Nicholson was something that she didn't want to repeat. But she, it's really sad. Like that, yeah. That that making of The Shining thing is so. Um, it's so sobering because she just basically talks about how she like had no sympathy at all from anyone. And, and I guess the question I have is, um, and even King kind of came out and, and said that, like, he said two things. He said, you know, uh, King envisioned, we already talked about like how on, on paper he envisioned her as like the blonde former cheerleader type who had never had to deal with any true problems in her life. And, um, the experience in the overlook was all the more ter- terrifying for her because of that. Whereas he felt like Duvall was too emotionally vulnerable and had kind of gone through a lot in life and was basically the opposite how he pictured the character. And, um, he even later said that like, you know, oh, she's just there to scream and be stupid. I don't know. Like, I mean, what do we make out of that's all why of this? I'm, that's like, why I'm we, here, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, you know, I, you know, I, I did, t- you know, call you beforehand. And I screamed at you for thirty minutes, but um, <laughs> you broke me before the podcast. Well, I mean, Jed, you're in this industry. How do you? What do you make of this type of work ethic? Because I mean, I, I, I imagine this type of ethic is is antiquated now, in, in a sense. Like, or do you um, still see this sometimes? You know, where you hear, people you hear stories. Yeah, so it's, but um, I would say there's no excuse now in the 21st century for a director to ever be shouting at their actresses to get the best out of them. Absolutely not. That we cannot have that. They're actors. They 
they don't need an extra incentive or a gun put to their head and, and blank spider or whatever other people have tried in the past. Like they're actors. If you cast them, trust them that they can do their job, they can get to the place they need to get to. All of the all of this thing is all of these things that these auteur directors do is just abuse. They it's unnecessary. And I get I get the fact that it establishes their legacy and it goes into legend and people go, oh, wasn't it wasn't it cool that he did this and he got this out of the actor? She could have done that anyway. Yeah. And it felt like, and especially again in the making of, he was really spoon feeding her like how to act. He was saying, okay, don't breathe at that point. And, and it's it's crazy. She she was she was just an Annie Hall just before The Shining. Yeah. She, she knows her stuff. She's been in, she was in, seven eight nine big movies before before the shining and then after the shining she went on to have, have a great career too she she wasn't uh it wasn't her first rodeo so um yeah it's kind of distressing seeing how she was treated and and i think the kind of the slight backlash against kubrick and and his ways of, of getting things out of actors is justified um it, yeah it got to the people where they were meant to get to but who would have who knows if they would have got there anyway um but yeah i think it's, it's definitely antiquated for me personally it may still happen but who knows <laughs> it's it, like it's infuriating to me like it's such like just like you were saying like antiquated is a good word because it's like such like i don't i don't even know what the word is but just it feels like such a dated way of doing it and then you think of like directors like coppola who took it kind of the other way and spent weeks like doing bonding exercises and like you know spending all this time doing trust exercises with his cast for like you know Bram Stoker's Dracula or whatever and I, th I think there's there's a quote I heard from him where he he you know it usually takes actors like halfway through filming before they really settle into their character and like as a director you just have to let them do that and it's like both Coppola and Kubrick are obviously incredible esteemed iconic directors but like how different their approaches are and it's 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 infuriating to me that Kubrick was able to get away with that and have all those people on the set like letting it happen is the other thing it's like think about how many people were there and just mm -hmm. like let this man like I get it like I get that he's the director I get that he's Kubrick but also the fact that like he was just allowed to act this way yeah. it's it's like such childish i don't know it's like who do you think it's you like, are david o russell well, it's, it's <laughs> like i don't know it's very i don't know there's a lot to unpack there about why it was allowed to happen i guess yeah it's that that whole meticulousness that uh, the, the tortured genius you know king actually talks a lot a lot this with uh with writing in that we kind of celebrate this sort of alcoholic writer or whatever, you know, like, oh, the one that's, you know, has to resort to like cocaine and all that stuff, this stuff to make the comedy happen or whatever. And like, he dismisses a lot of that stuff. He says, you know, like, if you want to get the fucking work done, just get to the, the, the table and get the work done. And I think that that kind of applies here where it's like, you don't need to go and do these, the, you don't have to resort to these lengths to get to, to where you are. I mean, devil's advocate, they're fucking amazing performances. I True. I believe the terror on everyone's face. I believe the madness on Nicholson. I mean, when you hear about stories about how, you know, he was with Angelica Houston at the time and she would say how like he would just come home and just like fall right into the bed and just be dead and fall immediately to sleep. Um, you know, there's stories about them feeding like Jack Nicholson only cheese sandwiches that she hates and like, you know, 
do I think this stuff is excessive? Yes. Do I think also the the mathematical mind that goes into a lot of this stuff is excessive? A hundred percent. But I don't know if I could objectively say that like it doesn't appear on screen in some way. I don't know. I, I it, it's very strange. It's like it's almost like. I wish we got one Stanley Kubrick movie. He didn't do this <laughs> so we could say, all right, well, look, it didn't fucking, you didn't have to do this. You know, you just let, you know, Tom Cruise fly in for fucking two weeks and film eyes wide shut. Like Jesus yeah. Christ. So I, 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 I don't know. It's I, I'm just, I'm always, I'm always immediately going to devil's advocate, but at the same time, like, all right, Stanley, like, let's cut the shit. Like, I just ultimately like, but <laughs> like, at what cost? Like, exactly. I'm sorry. Like yeah. the film is great. It's, I, I understand that. And like, I agree. I do. And that's why it's like such mixed feelings. But at the end of the day, is it worth what Shelley Duvall went through no. and where she's at now? No, it's not. So like no, no film is, at the, it's still just a movie. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's a piece of art, but it is just a movie and it was not worth like honestly traumatizing yeah. ruining this woman's life like it was yeah, yeah. and speaking yeah. of the yeah. trauma the opposite would be danny lloyd i know he, they <laughs> he didn't even know he was filming a horror movie they did such no. a good job of sheltering him um and he again we keep talking about the making of but he's just so cute and he's like yeah I'll probably get so paid cute. like five hundred dollars <laughs> so is he, all i'm thinking about is what my my, my dad are gonna buy me that's what that's what he said so funny yeah <laughs> So he lucked out because apparently, like, oh, I was reading like four thousand people auditioned for the role of Danny. Um, what a logistical you know, they, they, nightmare! How I know God, I yeah. can't even imagine. I, I and I imagine like Kubrick was just like, no, make sure you ask him a hundred something questions <laughs> each time. You know, these five year olds or whatever. But yeah, so he made it, and yeah, Kubrick. Um, although he was incredibly demanding, and intimidating to everyone, uh, especially you know Duvall and and, and Crothers. Um, he was really nice to Danny Lloyd, which makes me wonder, like, like because we've been talking at great lengths about how, like, masterminding Kubrick was, I wonder if he did this to, like, to piss off everyone in the cast. They'd be like, oh, that fucking son of a bitch kid. Like, you know, uh, like, because I, if I'm on set and I'm giving it my all and then this kid comes in and is like, hey, look what I drew. And he's like, oh, that's wonderful. And he's just been screaming at me for three hours. I'd be like, get the fuck out of here, kid. Like, I, don't, I can't, I can't be around you. I'd lose my mind. Like, he'd be like, why is he nice to him and not to us? Like, and I wonder like if there was a long game here for Kubrick, if that was his thing. It was like, you know, I'm going to be nice to this kid because obviously he's, you know, he's, he's a kid. But uh, if it makes Jack hate him, all the better, you know? Uh, maybe that's a conspiracy theory for me. But also, another question. The kid, I feel like, you know, Danny Lloyd, who played Danny Torrance, like, he had to know that something was going on in this movie. I mean, he says he didn't know that there's a horror movie, but, like, how do you... I, I don't know. I feel like, wouldn't you know as a kid that you're in something here? Like, well, like, why is, you know, your your on-screen mom, like, telling you to, like, run away? And why are you, like, yeah. staring at a mirror with, like, this terrified look in your... Like, what is what are they telling him is happening? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think it's a little... I like the story. Yeah, no, no. But I, I, have I, to I agree, too. Like, Because I'm also like, yeah, how it, you're writing murder on a door. Like. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, Holding a knife. Yeah. yeah and then being red round. Like, it's a comedy, Danny. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's funny because they're like they're like I did like how he did they're like, like oh yeah we use a dummy he, and it's like okay. he only made three movies in his life and it's kind of cool because he's in Doctor Sleep briefly which I thought was a cool little mm-hmm. cameo. I well, mean, like he wouldn't have any reference to any other horror films if he's five years old, so maybe he didn't even know what a horror film was. He just thought a film was a film, and because again in the making of The Shining, he he says that 
him and his friends they play film they play filmmaking and they go and he because he's been in films he he kind of shows off that he, he knows what he's doing and so i feel like he does have some level of understanding about what's happening uh, and like you say like like his his screen mum was running around screaming holding a knife you kind of know that this isn't this isn't like bugs bunny i think that um, happened on halloween too like i i remember like an interview i saw with like kyle richards the mm-hmm. you know the real housewife queen and um I'm a, I'm a fan i'm a fan yeah and she was talking <laughs> like when she was in halloween like she didn't realize it was a, a horror movie ever and was like mortified later on like whoa what am i <laughs> this is not yeah. what I thought it's got to be so weird like growing up and being like oh that was my movie mm-hmm. yeah it's uh I don't know it'd be awesome to see it though eventually and be like oh that's what happened I mean I can't even, like because of how detailed this movie is if I'm the kid that's running around the set and just having fun you know Leon Vitale is like like you know keeping me occupied and being my babysitter and then they show me the movie I made it'd be overwhelming to like see it right i mean because apparently he didn't see it until like i guess five or six years later and at at that point it was already like i think yeah it it was longer yeah Yeah, exactly and it was like edited down i think even too still pretty cool Um, speaking of overwhelming we should talk about scat man yeah yeah yeah, because uh again tough time he was actually brought on because i guess he went through Nicholson, I think, who who suggested him also to bring in. I I, I love Scatman Crothers in that. I, I think he's great. There's a lot of controversy over the years surrounding his death. Mm-hmm. What do you make of this? I mean, we we basically said how it's the only real death we have in this movie. It's not even in the book. It's brought to the table. Does the movie still work if Halloran lives? I guess that's the big question. Mm. Well, I I took it as just going back to the the Native American uh, First Nations thing that Scatman almost becomes a stand-in for like the crimes of America, right? The Americans have already wiped out the Native Americans and now what's next? The black man, right? He's the one that gets put down. They use racist language when describing him. So I always took it kind of as that, that, you know, Jack Nicholson quotes the Kipling poem that white man's burden, right? So there definitely is discussion of race and hints at so I think the fact that he is the victim kind of speaks to that in a powerful way. Yeah. I do think that for a couple of different reasons that he did need to die, actually. It also like solidifies what Jack's capable of, right? And because up until this point, like he hasn't actually killed anybody. Oh, I mean, mm-hmm. he's acting a little, a little crazy, but um, he hadn't actually killed anybody. So once this happens, it's like, okay, there's no going back from this. No, there's yeah. no like dropping the ax and like, oh, Wendy, I'm so sorry. You know, and unlike what we see in the book, it's like, this is, this is it. Like the, he's done. <laughs> like, like there is no, there is no more Jack as we know him. Yeah. Just, uh, I agree with Rachel. Someone had to die and he was one of the very few characters and he'd kind of served his purpose um, in terms of like uh, being that kind of what person that teaches Danny, what it's called and what he can do. So um I think it's a genius, genius move that um, to play with audience expectations because you you expect him, especially if you've read the book, you expect him to be the savior and and to subvert the normal conventions of the movie and to subvert audience expectations. It, it just makes it just further proves Kubrick is just border. Well, he is a genius. Um, I have no problem with him dying at that moment. It ne- it needs to happen. Who else were you going to kill? There, there was no one else to kill. 
we need to we need to establish that he is capable of the worst possible things and so he does it but it's still a shock now when i watched it like recently i was like wow that, well you that's feel really it powerful. Mm. and like because like scatman does such a great performance and like mm. you really feel this relationship and like the fact that he just i mean just like in the book he works so hard to get there yeah to like just see it so like like that rug pulled out yeah. from him so quickly it's like oh like it takes your breath away a little bit because yeah. it's just like wait that's yeah. it i always picture no. him like at the airport being like like <laughs> in his dying moment being like you know i went through security to fly out i here know and i just immediately <laughs> yeah. get killed and- I would, I'd, I'd love to see a movie where with those five hours that he drove from the airport to to, to meet his friend yeah. with, with, with the with the with the truck thing he's like oh like- uh, flight attendant could i top off this ginger ale please like, <laughs> yeah. well, that, that's actually that's actually coming to netflix next year it's uh it's it's halloran uh i think mike flanagan <laughs> yeah, is gonna direct it yeah, it's good. It's a prequel to Doctor Sleep, and uh, no, I I agree. Yet it's this long journey, and it just it, it feels like this like tongue in cheek punchline. Mm-hmm. You're like, all right, I got here. Boop, you're done. It, it's yeah. it's, and I always forget which pillar uh, Jack Nicholson's behind. Like every time I think like, oh, it's gonna be that one. Nope, nope, not not that yeah. one. Oh, mm-hmm. it's the last on the rewatch one. Okay. too. That's yeah. when Wendy pushes the food cart. She does the same path that Halloran does, and it cuts off right oh. when she crosses that column. So wow. it's foreshadowing That's that. Cool. Um, but if you think about it, he did save their lives because Jack yeah. was breaking into the bathroom. So, yeah. but for him being there and distracting Jack, Wendy would have been killed. But Wendy, it's Danny casting. presumably would have been killed too. Can you imagine anyone else playing that role? Like, and, and again, in, in the makeup of The Shining, the interview with the Scatman is heartbreaking. It starts off with him in tears from yeah. the second one. And he's, he's so happy to be part of this process. And um, and he just he loves Danny as a son. Oh man, it, it, it really got to me. Like it's, um, it just feels like he's such a nice guy, and he's so appreciative of that. He's in this juggernaut of a movie with with the most famous man in the world um, at, at that time, and the, the most famous and best director in the world. Um, but yeah, it's it's it's, per- it's perfect. Even Charlie, even though we kind of said potentially it's not exactly what King wanted, I still think Shelley Duvall is the perfect casting for this particular movie. Um, yeah, it's it's just, it's 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 great. <laughs> it is really good casting. Like, I mean, down to I mean, because they go beyond archetypes. I feel like. I mean, I feel like this, like what Kubrick warned about horror, and then also just even King's novel. Like, it could easily lean into archetypes, and I don't feel like that's the case. Like, one of the one of the greatest um, takeaways I think that and I keep referencing him, but Thomas Allen Nelson uh, talks about how you know they all have this like sort of duality to their own personalities. Like on the surface, Wendy seems as if she's you know she's reading Catching the Rye. You know, she's 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 into horror movies. She's into ghost stories. Yet she's also a stay at home mother. You know, and then on the surface, you know, Jack seems to kind of be like, maybe, you know, he's a teacher. He's maybe he has like liberal personalities and ideologies, but really inside he's like a sexist. And he's like, you know, there's a lot of depth to a lot of these characters that I think goes back into what we're just, what I was describing before of just like it, it being more, more uh, visual than it's, it's more show than actually tell. And I think I get a lot of that with, with a lot of the performance here, they bring a lot of nuances uh, to everything that they have here. Specifically, you know, Shelley Duvall and especially Scatman Crothers. Like, I, I just, I love every fucking scene in it. And we talked about how watching this silently, but like those scenes when he's just with Danny when they first get there, that that might be like one of my favorite scenes of the mm, whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like them talking is just so good. The, the Kubrick's use of the silence in that that moment and the way that 
Scatman just think I'm mean, granted they I think they did that that scene like 149 takes or some shit yeah. like that but like he gets the pauses so well that you feel the weight of the history of the overlook in every one of his responses like when he's like oh you scared of room 237 he's like trying to keep a poker face yeah. and he he does but there's just enough that yes. Scatman brings to it where you're like there is something else that he's not telling him and it's fucking great it's also the first time that like Danny realizes someone else has this power. He's not alone in the world. Up until now, he's just been alone. He's been very insular, literally in his own head. And and now he has someone to share with it. And maybe there's more people out there, which we, which we find out. Yeah, and I like um, that that's also how it gets the name Shining, right? Because, yeah. you know, this these psychic powers exist all throughout the King universe. And mm. this is just one person that gave it the name a Shine. That's what we default think of it as. Yeah. But it, it's just interesting to see, like, how that kind of became, I don't know, part of, like, the lexicon. Um, yeah. What's interesting too, though, in that scene when he's eating ice cream with Danny is if you look in the background, all the knives in the kitchen are hanging right over Danny's head in the background. Wow. And when he's with his mom and Dick, the same thing is happening. Just the angle they film it is the knife rack is dangling over Danny's head. They're like, eh, maybe get the knives away from the kid. Well, they're like 10 uh, feet back, but it just looks <laughs> like it. Yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be, <laughs> you know. Um, well, let's let's kind of quickly go over some of the corollary characters. I mean, the the two ghosts the ghosts are the most really um they they were uh the rare kubrick alumni uh philip stone is dubber grady he was one of two kubrick alumni to be in three of his films uh is in this one obviously he's the father of alex delarge in a clockwork orange and he played um the great character graham i don't know who graham is in barry Lyndon, but he's in there um and then there's joe turkle love joe um, Joe loved Joe Turkle. He was in, he goes way back with Kubrick. Uh, he was in 1956's The Killing uh, as Tiny, and he was in 1957's Paths to Glory as Private Arnold, uh, Arnaud. And um, he's also one of two Blade Runner connects in this movie because the footage in the beginning when they're uh, roaming over Colorado, uh, they use that footage in um, <laughs> the much maligned theatrical cut yes. of Blade Runner uh, when they go out and you know it's just like well I got out of that and you know he's like you know Harrison Ford's narration is all over it and everything but I love these two roles I, I think that one of my favorite things about Kubrick especially when it comes to the unnerving aspects of him is the stoicism of 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 these type of figures the ones that just stand there and there's something there's they're they're, they're like this beacon of tension that they just kind of exist and they 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 stop the protagonists. They're statuesque and the, the protagonists almost are just like marveling at them. And I feel like that's maybe one of the reasons why these two actors are the few act, you know talents that have managed to be in multiple Kubrick uh movies because they seem to nail exactly what he wants out of these moments. I, I don't know. What, what, what you got any thoughts on, on Joe Turkle as Lloyd or Philip Stone as Delbert Grady? Because I, I just think they're just phenomenal. I think they they bring terror without having to use or lean on any haunted house hijinks whatsoever. Like, it's just, you just watch them and you're like, there's something unnerving about it. When you think about, like, paired, especially with Jack, with Jack Nicholson, like mm -hmm. somebody who's so visually engaging you know with his facial expressions and his physical movements and then you have these two characters who just like you were saying are just so stoic and they don't really give you much and so seeing that juxtaposition of characters is it's it's really unsettling honestly because they're not I don't know they're not matching each other's energy almost and like you know it, you have to imagine like if you're standing there and Jack Nicholson is talking to you that way like how you would engage with that and the fact that they don't 
is, I don't know, it's really visually powerful, I think. Oh, totally. Yeah, they feel very out of time. Um, you know, they're like, there's something oddly old fashioned, but also just otherworldly about them. Um, I think Joe Turkle's stare is just so good when he has like that kind of coy smile and all the conversations very superficial that women can't live with them, can't live without them. It's like <laughs> wise words. And I love to, the, uh, it's just such a strange, like, you're like, they're not really saying anything to each other, but it, you know, it's a very much like a, I don't know, transactional relationship. And with Grady and Mike and I were watching this the other day. One of my favorite little gags is when he spills the apricot cocktails onto Jack Nicholson. As he's wiping off, he's taken to the bathroom and Jack Nicholson pats him on the back and he has a wet yeah. apricot hand. And it's just like, <laughs> oh, you spilled it on me. So I'm going to get a little more on you. And like, so very, very, such very good an sense. asshole yeah. move. And he totally would do that. It, it's such an like, alpha thing, on. though, to be like, yeah. not just to touch someone and invade their space, but also like, oh, you spilled that on me. Have some mm. for yourself, Jeevesy. Yeah. Yeah, I think the uh, the the move from being like nice and sweet and saying, "No, you're the most important person to me," and then just for that, even without saying anything, just switching into a different mode up against one of the best actors like we've ever had, Jack Nicholson, uh, to go toe to toe with him, um, and not just because sometimes when you have like if you look at a, um, a Marriage Story when Scar Joe and Adam Driver they're fighting, they 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 both increase at the same time but in in the shining it's one is very animated and one's stoic like you say and that's really interesting but they can keep the same intensity which is two different methods it's just again the casting is just genius yeah and, and just the power dynamics too of you know jack being the customer this you know servant butler and then mm -hmm. he starts questioning him and you can see jack starting to be like angry like wait no you're lying to me didn't you and then by the end he's just like aghast and Brady just never, or Grady never changes his tone. It's just so good. And, and I really do think that that's sort of what adds to the horror of this movie. I mean, I, I think aesthetic really does play a big part of it, but I think it's these sort of relationships, these the, the dichotomy of someone that's Jack Nicholson who's playful and sort of, um, you know, yeah, he's a is a beacon of terror at the end. But before that, you are kind of. I mean, there's a reason why we share gifs of him, and like, you know, we kind of keep making you know impersonations of him all the time. Is that there? There's a there's life to him, whereas these characters there isn't. There's like a an absence of life, and there's if anything, there's a maliciousness underneath. And I think of even beyond the ghosts. Like one of my favorite archetypes in a, in a Kubrick movie is the authority. And I I, I think honestly, like for who, for someone who's like Stanley Kubrick, who's so at the wheel all the time, I think the idea of not being at the wheel is one of his greatest terrors, which is why I think so many of the threats in his movies happen to be these figureheads. I think of the character, Fleer, we talked about this last, last week when you were over. One of the creepiest moments of this entire movie for me has nothing to do with the supernatural or even any of this, the, the spooky stuff. It's the the authorities in the beginning. And it's where you have the dichotomy between someone like Stuart Ullman, who's Barry Nelson, who talk about a hunk. He was like one of the first James Bond movies. He's a gorgeous man. And he's very funny and he's very flamboyant and he's nice. But but, but right next to, uh, to him is probably the person that's really in charge, which is this guy named Bill Watson, who's the guy that sits next to uh, Jack Nicholson during the interview. And he only says a couple of things. He nods and he says some things and then he goes and runs his errands later on. But I think he's so important. And this is so like this. Now I feel like one of those Redditors at this point, but I think he's such a total Cooper construct because he's the silent watcher. He's yeah. like the one who probably has all the answers and he, yet he's probably the most dangerous too. And he's, this character is in 
all of Steve, Stanley Kubrick's uh, works, like even something like like um, Full Metal Jacket, when you get into some of the, the offices and you have Arlie Erming who's barking his head off, but behind Arlie Erming are some other folks that are out there. And it's like that sort of, that silent figure of authority is so unnerving. And I just, I think of that yeah. that character all the time. He's like it's sizing so Jack up and you could see, yes. and especially since they had the murder, you know, that, because I always thought he might have been like an attorney or something or like, you mm-hmm. know, I can think of him as like a mob attorney, but they're like, okay, we had this murder. That was a PR nightmare. Who knows the ramifications? So now anyone that's going to take over, I'm going to have to size them up and get an idea. So you're right. Barry's the one in charge outwardly or, you know, Stuart, but Bill Watson, I think is behind the scenes, kind of the puppet master. Even just the way he responds to things like, like, like when you watch, like when they're in the lobby and it's like, Hey, can you take the things? And he's just like, sure. Or he says, like, it, it, the the one word response he has is it's got some sort of passive aggressivism towards towards it. I don't know. I just think he sets the tone for this movie. Like the minute this is like literally your first real chance to get into the Overlook, and you have this fucking guy who, by the way, kind of looks a little bit like Jack Nicholson too, sitting there <laughs> just fucking staring the whole time. If I'm Jack Nicholson. I, I hear that story from Ullman and I turn and be like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, is he going to say anything? Like, he's kind of creeping me out. Like, I, I, anyway. Maybe I <laughs> went like Big Lebowski <sighs> with Knox Harrington. He's like, who the fuck is this guy? Who the fuck is this guy? Oh, right here. Yeah. Anyway, any other thoughts on Bill Watts? <laughs> well, let's talk about the last two uh, figures I want to talk about here in Heroes and Villains, which is the, the, the old woman in the bath and the Grady twins. Both in the novel, technically but very different on screen and iconic for not even being in the novel in the, in the same way. Like the Grady twins are mentioned in the novel. They don't manifest. Um, the old woman in the novel uh, has a certain different approach than it's presented here. Um, I think this takes on a little bit more of a malicious turn, although actually the old woman in the, in the novel is pretty terrifying also. What do we make of these two sequences? Do we think that the, this, the, the room 217, room 237 scene is scarier in the book um and do we like that the fact that the grady twins have become as iconic with stephen king as the the blood at the prom which is kind of crazy to think of that's not even really in his book and yet it's it's most people see the twins and they're like stephen king i love them all yeah just like you said like the iconography of the twins it is really weird that they're not really in the book but it does like it just like we were talking about with you know grady and lloyd like there's something so i mean they're just creepy i'm sorry like i know that there's twins i I, mac i'm sorry but like sometimes twins can be like really unsettling and we're talking about like these like these ideas of like duality and stuff and also just because you know what happened to them like we hear the story about them before well i guess we see them in the mirror but like once we learn what happened to him. So it's just like every time you see them, it's kind of like morbid curiosity. It's kind of like a train wreck, right? Like, you know, what's going to happen to them. And it's just really unsettling seeing them there, knowing that they're going to be murdered by their father. So I don't know. It's like a weird macabre thing to see them and just the colors too. I think the visual part of it, you can't undervalue that just the way the contrast of their dresses and their hair. And it's, I mean, it's just creepy. (laughs) Yeah, was this the first time twins were kind of, I mean, I guess there were some other films, but like, I think this established twins as being scary, though there's no real reason in in reality why twins should be scary. I know, isn't it weird? Yeah, but now, but since The Shining, like, I think people, 
think twins are scary, especially twin girls. And, and even the fact that just that they are kids and like Danny's a kid and you know what mm-hmm. happens to them at that hotel. So it's like, you know, this this thread that's connecting Danny and them and like, well, this is what happened to us and like this could happen to you. Mm-hmm. And so like knowing what happened to them like makes you fear for Danny even more because they had such a brutal end. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because there's a lot of, like we were saying earlier, they said the daughters were aged eight and 10, but they're twins. And then mm-hmm. when Jack is talking to Grady in the bathroom, he's like, you killed your wife and daughter, like singular, chopped them up into bits. He doesn't oh, say wow. daughters. He just says he daughter. And I, I rewatched the scene. He, he says just one. So there's a theory that the twins are almost like a mirror reflection. And if you notice, their hair is parted on opposite ends. So mm. they look like a reflection of each other. There's a lot of mirroring, you know, looking in mirrors. Jesus, and when crazy. they go into room 237, just to go back on the conspiracy wagon, all the doors on that floor are single doors Room 237 is the only one that has twin doors. And as Danny's going wow. in, there's a flash of the twins. So I don't know. Just Kubrick having fun. Yeah, but I, I, it's, 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 it's so interesting how, like, psychologically we, we find these things alarming. You know, and, and, I, and I have always credited that sequence with the twins in the hallway as being scary just because of the claustrophobic notions of it. Like, the, the hallway itself is really narrow. And I just think of like, if I'm a kid, it's on a four, you know, what is it called? A tricycle. tricycle. Yeah. Mm. Um, I was more of a Power Wheels guy. Um, but no, I'm just joking. I'd never had King of the Road. Wheels, but, um, I was a Power Wheels yeah, guy. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I guess I'd be jealous if you were my neighbor. I'd be like, hey, can I borrow your, your Power Wheels? Um, anyway, <laughs> um, I, I, I just think there is a narrow claustrophobic sensation there but even then you see the twins later on and i'm still like oh god get away yeah. from me it's, it's like, crazy because they are the victims like yeah why are we scared of like it, it wasn't their fault they weren't the ones who killed anyone but yet they're really scary but that particular shot the the quite famous steady cam behind the behind the tricycle um to them the thing that got me that i was and i was looking out for it this time the thing that got me is when it when it ends on on them appearing it's not symmetrical. Like um, he he's slightly off center, and then it, and then it uh, then you see the reverse, and you see Danny's face reacting, and then it goes back, and then it's symmetrical. So so I don't know if if Cupid did that on purpose. Like I, I I don't know if that means something. He's off center at first. And uh, I don't, I don't know, but like, yeah. Well, yeah. and like the way it's edited too, like every time it cuts back and forth, like I, I, th- I think that they're a little closer. Mm. And so it's like, every time you see it, it's like all those pieces. It's just, it's so interesting how like all that s- stuff really kind of subconsciously plays with you. And so it's, it's hard to articulate why they're scary, I think, but it's all these little pieces that come together that just create this atmosphere that's just so unsettling. And it's not like just one thing. And I yeah. think that really speaks to all the pieces, all the players, the production design, Kubrick, the editing, like all coming together and just creating this iconic piece of cinema lore that like far transcends anything it was ever intended to. Yeah, and even just like the theme of turning corners. There's so many turning of right angle corners that's setting up the hedge maze at the end, right? When Danny turns, he he sees the twin. It's literally just like the hedge maze, but inside. Um, And also just as a little kid, when I first watched it, seeing the beautiful nude woman was like, awesome right you're like oh man nudity in a movie and then the cut to like her becoming the hag is so mm-hmm. disturbing and especially when you yeah, go i don't from know that... i thought that was pretty fucking hot yeah that's... <laughs> but, <I> mean, <laughs> yeah even now like take what you can get yeah so, no no i've since come along but no but just going from yeah. that heightened sense of like sex to the terror was such a 
shocking yeah. thing for a young I've mind. Always, I've always found that so unsettling because, like, in my mind, it's it's the same person, right? And so I've always just like it's so unsettling to see like oh this one minute we're like lusting after this woman who is incredibly beautiful and very attractive and very seductive with you know jack and then the next second we're like ew get away from me and like that just that juxtaposition of like it's the same person and like yes she's very different when she gets a little bit older but it's so strange to me it's like it's the same the same person and like how quickly it can like I'm just picturing jack know, being like stanley we're, we're gonna have to do 80 takes of me kissing this nude model like, yeah they yeah. did do 80 takes of them like she t- uh. i was reading something that she i guess she was a nude model and so she was totally comfortable being around everyone and she said actually like like stanley was just like a total gentleman which again i'm sure like you know just like the danny lloyd thing it's just like all right well you're she didn't know she was in a horror movie naked though. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but I, I think the way that it's shot and I'm, I'm such a, one of the things that gets me is peripheral horror. Like that's the stuff that gets me the most, especially when there's a long, like a long hallway or a long shot and whatever is down there knows who you are and, and is well aware of where you are at that moment. And the way that she, when you first see the hand creep around, oh the, the, it's so fucking scary. Like, cause you're like, well, wait a second. A, no one's supposed to be there, but then B, like, it's it's just the way that she, again, I keep using that word stoicism. Like she just like kind of moves on in like a dreamlike state and then like peers around and you almost don't even see her eyes. It's just like, it almost looks like the cover of like um, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist with like the, the, the face and stuff. It's so unnerving to me. So I, I mean, we, we joked obviously about it being like a sexual scene and stuff, but I've never, I've always just been like rattled by the scene. Like if there's even just the idea of like Jack being able to be like, Oh, I want to get something tonight. Like I, I'd be like, no, get the fuck out of the room. Like a run. Like are you nuts? Like well, and they set like, that up, didn't they? With uh, a yeah. right at the start of the film where he sees those two women leaving and he just has a little wry smile. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's multiple times where two women in yeah. the beginning, there's three times that two women go by Jack. So I think even just mm. playing to the twins thing, but yeah, Jack, turns his head and looks at some of them as they're leaving yeah (laughs) you also like you don't know what her motivations are you don't know what you're gonna do like you talk about her like pulling the curtain back and showers are always terrifying for the record like it never gets old it always because you're trapped there's nowhere to go (laughs) yeah and like just the fact that like you i mean the whole time until she starts laughing it's like you don't know what her intentions are like she's just very you talk about that stoicism like calmly just gets out of the tub and is like hey what's up and then starts making out with him so especially the first time you see it there's all this buildup about this room right and then you're just like waiting for something to happen and so it's just like that tension building yeah, uh, I remember well, it as a suicide too, even though it's not. But when I was little, I feel like, oh, she killed herself in that tub. Well, she does in the book. Yeah, yeah. but in the movie, I because I saw the movie before I read the book, I just remember thinking like, oh, she must have killed herself there. But they never really confirmed yeah. that in the movie. Mm. No. Yeah, I mean, I remember my dad warning me about this this scene just because when he read it in the novel, he actually had to put the book down. Like he was like, all right, this is too, and it's really terrifying in the novel because the way that they describe her running towards Danny. Um, and getting to the door or like at one point I think Jack it's either Jack or Danny looks underneath or sees underneath the door that someone's standing behind it which mm-hmm. is so scary to me and it's like you can mm-hmm. see the wetness and then it, you, you almost want to say it's like a nightmare which I've just made my own seg uh, to the next category which we call uh, <laughs> nightmares and dreamscapes if you think your dreams are disturbing <laughs> 
Imagine the nightmares of Stephen King. What are you, some sort of a horror movie guy? No, Clyde, I'm a literary guy. So in this section, the next couple, we have two more sections, and they're, they're pretty much speed rounds. In Nightmares and Dreamscapes, though, we, we kind of share what we love and what we hate. I feel like we've pretty much shared what we love about this movie, mostly with our discussion. So I don't know if you agree. That I, th- I think we kind of skew the, the the love a little bit and kind of show, maybe like outline some of the blemishes a little bit, you know, like things that we don't traditionally like, like something I would maybe go to Spielberg if I had the balls and if he was still alive and be like, Stanley, you messed up here. Um, <laughs> so in that sense, uh, Rachel, what is one thing that you don't like on this movie? Oh gosh. I, What's it's a nightmare. Ugh, I mean, the behind the scenes stories is a nightmare oh. to me, but when I'm thinking about like, yeah, I don't know. I have a hard, let me think about this some more. I have a hard time okay. thinking about okay. something that I don't like. I know Mike, tell us the one that you, you pointed out when we were watching it. Yeah. So for me, the thing that, that, that always never rung true is Wendy and the skeletons. I, I just think it, you know, that's a Mick good Harris, one. That's a good Mick one. Harris, it's just, it, it's it, like, we talked a little bit a few weeks ago about the writing the bullet, like Mick Harris horror, like goosebumps horror. Like that's what it seems like to me. Like it's not frightening. It feels way too literal, especially when you juxtapose it against like the more vague and bizarre horror that Kubrick kind of um, wields. And even just the execution, like there's like that one skeleton waiter holding the tray. It just looks so <laughs> stupid. Like I, I, it just doesn't work for me. And even when, and I just feel like the rest of the film just totally avoids these sort of like haunted house hijinks. And it just seems like I, I always forget it's there. Like I've, every time I think about that image, I'm always like, oh, no, that's from the 97 miniseries. No, it's from fucking Kubrick's. Like, it's crazy. Like, it's I don't know. Anyway, I do wish that's mine. I do wish that they would have because it seems like Jack is not very nice from the very beginning. I do wish that there was a bit more of a transition with his character because mm-hmm. he's so unlikable, like right off the bat like he's i mean the conversations in the car just the way that he's looking and talking to wendy like i i do wish that there was a little bit more of an arc for him or like a little bit i i don't know because it seems like he was you know he was quote unquote born bad or something so it's i do wish that we saw a little bit more of that i fair yeah yeah which maybe if we got some of those um Actually, no, the school scenes would really probably just made him more of an asshole. Anyway, I don't know how they'd fix that. <laughs> but, uh, Jed, what about you? What's one thing that you'd be like, eh, get out of here? Um, I think he kind of missed an opportunity to have more Scatman. I would like to have seen more of him and what, and, and almost establish the rules of, of the powers, um, what the Shining can do. I would like to have seen more more to that. But but to be honest, like it's, I love every, every part of it. And it's difficult to pick something out. If it, a gun to my head, maybe the ending, I kind of would have liked to see in the Overlook on Fire, which the original kind of thing, that would have been cool. I'm, all, I'm always into big bombastic endings and this ending, even though I, I, I still love it, feels like a little bit of an anti-climax. So if I was a gun to my head, push, I would say a fire would be kind of cool. Yeah, get the boiler going. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I thought you were going to say the uh, British cut cutting the doctor scene. <laughs> Because the UK release doesn't have that scene. I thought that would be your Oh, that's type. true. Oh, is yeah. that true? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think they put it back in, but for some reason they took it out. Nice. Yeah. Oh, really? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, they, because uh, originally they, there was the, that thing where they, I guess, Ullman visits them in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And I was, and I feel like that would have been such an anticlimactic ending to have yeah. that in there. It just, no, I don't really need to. I love the guy, but I don't need to see him again. Yeah. Um, any others or? I mean, the, I, I still want to see 
Kubrick do the hedge animals. I was yeah, gonna say that yes. <laughs> and I like it would have been nice to at least see them. <laughs> Even it's if it's because... just a, a, a turn of a head of, of a of a crease, but then and that's it. Just a hint at it would have been kind of yeah. interesting and cool. I agree. Yeah. Because honestly, th- th- that stuff right there in the novel is some of the scariest moments. Like when when Danny's playing outside and there's that one tunnel that's like near the playground that something happened in that tunnel and he they never King never explains what's in it. But just says there's Pennywise. a presence that he, yeah it could have been Pennywise is down there he's just like you mm-hmm. know I, I took a I took a trip, um, <laughs> but th- there is there is that 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 just screams for Kubrick like that shot of a tunnel or something like that would have been really interesting but yeah the hedge animals it's just interesting in a year that Empire Strikes Back comes out like you couldn't do anything with the hedge animal like there's no like like stop motion I feel like it would have been terrifying I mean fuck Sam Raimi a year later goes and does like stop motion and it's fucking gnarly as hell but it works like you could have literally had somebody inside one and just turning something like yeah. there's yeah. I mean come on I mean Jim yeah. Henson's creature shop could have done that in their sleep I know just, yeah <laughs> We'd probably be sitting here now being like, you know, look what they did in 1980 versus 2017 <laughs> when they do special effects. We could have, uh, uh, just we were talking about Ghostbusters earlier. There's the part when, uh, the was it Zool dog is running, runs out yeah. after Tully. That's kind of a cheesy claymation. Mm-hmm. It's like the one effect that doesn't but really work. But it works. Work. Not for me. Yeah. Ruin the movie. Oh, no, oh, it doesn't work? No, I, I love it. It's, it's just, but I'm just picturing like, it would be cool to see the head channels, but yeah, I wonder how they would execute it. Well, they they definitely well, Mick Garris tried in '97, and that scene when like he's just playing, and then the things are slowly coming out of him, like a Windows '95 screensaver is interesting, but um, not sure <laughs> that worked too well. The, I've got love for the miniseries. I think there are, I things, too, yeah. there are things in that miniseries that are really, really interesting, and and I know it was a little bit of an attempt at course correction, but I I I, I I'm a Mick Garris fan. I, I like the stuff he does, and I think he re- he really tries to do what's what King really one oh, to yeah so um yeah there's yeah. definitely a place for that oh absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah um well we talked about things that uh, go bump in the night uh we, we talked i've talked about things that are, should have been scary in this section let's talk about things that are actually scary in our penultimate section uh cemetery what's the bottom of the truth well sometimes that is better the person you put up there ain't the person that comes back it may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. So in the cemetery, it's as simple as this. What's the scariest scene? <laughs> it's, it's, it's as simple as that, yeah. So Flieger, you you just you just chuckled. Let's hear you scream. Uh, um, so what gets you? God, there's just so many. Um one you get one, one. You get, okay you only get one the obvious i mean like i don't Highlander. want to do the bear costume because that's too obvious that very scary i actually think the look in dick Holleran's eyes when he's when danny's reaching out he has this like glazed over look and because he's an old man he sort of has like cataracts forming and i just think the look of terror on his face where like his mouth is open i, I just think that's very scary rachel oh gosh just one um so there's this scene I, it always really unsettles me is when Jack is just staring out the window <laughs> and he's staring at them like playing outside, but just the look on his face, it's like, 
I mean, if you ever saw somebody looking at you that way, like you would immediately like, <laughs> oh fuck, I gotta get out of here. <laughs> like it's it's so simple and it's so terrifying. And then just everything, the way it's shot and the music and what it's saying, and the fact that you can like, I don't know, see so much of Jack's character like just being swallowed up by this power and also just like not being able to do anything about it like it's just i don't know that that one always that always gets me i have a painting of that exact shot in my house oh, i do great oh, yeah. i don't yeah. i don't i, I, put, I position it so i don't have to see it all the time because i'm like i can't yeah, okay. be staring at this too often no if you and sometimes if you walk by you'll see dan staring at it just like jack <laughs> um so, uh jed what's the scariest scene in this movie for you for me, it's when um, Jack first turns on, on on Wendy when he's writing and just tells her, "Don't you fucking disturb me." Just that, and just the look in her face is is it shows fear, but also shows that she's used to this as well, and and that is horrifying, fine to me. And and that's the scene that apparently Jack Nicholson wrote himself. Like he, um, surprisingly, Kubrick like un, unlike him, just like Jack, knock yourself out, write write your own scene. And uh, I think it's really powerful. I think it's it allowed Jack to do what he does best, which is just turn on a dime and just go crazy. Yeah, the um, resignation yeah. in her face when she's like, "Oh, come on, honey, don't be like that." And it's just like, yeah. "Oh man." And that's when well, he that's when he sees Shelley Duvall like how great she is as an actress because she she just she just says yes, she nods with the look on her face, just tells a story. It's great. Because like, what else can you do at yeah. that moment? You know, it's like she just the circumstances are just beyond her control. Because even early, is it early on when it's just like it's just like, uh, well, you know, something will happen to you. And it's like, yeah, that's all that it takes, or something like yeah. that. Just like the, the passive aggressiveness <laughs> yes. is just so unbearable. Yeah. Um, can, I, can I kind of say one addendum? No, you got one. No, you got one. okay. Well, this you is something one. different. There's, I'm just gonna, you got I'm one gonna pocket say it anyway. for some scary. All right, just, say just it really anyway. quick. Because uh, there, there are shots. There are shots of like perspective, like first person, like when Jack is going into room two thirty seven, right? You see through his eyes as the camera. Mm-hmm. But there's the shot when all work and no play when Wendy's rifling through it, and you see the camera come around the corner, and you think it's going to be his perspective, and then he walks in front of you. You see him go up, and then he's like, "Do you like it?" And you still jump, even though you see it's not a jump scare, but it affects you like one you see where he's at there's no big you know surprise but it still makes you get scared there i'm happy i yeah. said that well i'm no i'm glad you said it um uh, we're in agreement. but uh we, we 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 got to hear a little another trick of the trade when it comes to kubrick book of filmmaking um so uh for me it's so simple i actually have a a, a sweatshirt of this image it's uh when danny is playing darts and he turns around and the twins are right there like for me it's that is just it's so scary because um it's the simplicity i mean it's just it's just them standing there in a, in a in a brightly lit room but what really gets under my skin about it is is the fact that like the good a good portion of the staff is still at the hotel like mm. and yet the grady twins are appearing like everyone's there for the most part like almond's there my that that's the psychopath that, that works for him is there you know and they're all taking the tour everything should be hunky-dory yet they appear which means that like i don't know it's like for me it's like feels like the interior version of daylight horror or something like that like it just i don't know it just completely sets the tone for like the ghost element of this like yeah this is what's going to be here and this is just the tip of the iceberg and um it's also kind of what we were talking about that confounding feeling of like why are these twins scary but then then you couple it with like the fact that now they're even further away they're like you know they're down across the room like i don't know it just it gets me and then the way he zooms in on it it's just 
scariest um, thing from that scene is the fact that he managed to get three darts on the dartboard. Which I, <laughs> yeah. Like, this, this kid's five years old. Like, sign yeah, him up. Short. Sign him up. But, yeah. Uh, uh, but obviously, obviously, he was just off camera. He missed every time, and then they were already there, but still. Yeah, I like to like, think put him in. He, he aced it first time. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, hey, Jack, maybe not like try to write a book. Like, look at your, you have a child prodigy here that's <laughs> yeah. like amazing at darts. Just go to every bar across Sidewinder. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, their next section was supposed to be King's Dominion, but there's really not any King's Dominion in this this uh, in this movie. If anything, there are a lot of differences, which we don't need to go into because that gets in the weeds of a lot of things. So instead, I think we just go straight to final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. Said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Now, in final thoughts, we give our final thoughts on the movie. What a what a, a novel uh, novel title for the section. Um, which again, as as our listeners know, we rate everything on five Pennywise clown noses, one through five. One being the worst, five being the best. So let's start with you, Dan Flieger. Tell us what rating do you give your favorite movie of all time? Yeah, uh, (laughs) (laughs) five noser for me automatically. I love this movie so much. I feel like this and Goodfellas, if they're on TV, I just have to start watching them. Like I've watched them so many times. I I just think it's so well put together. I love Kubrick. I love the precision and the thought that goes into every shot. The music is insane. The visuals are insane. The acting is so good. It's still very scary, and it's seen as one of the scariest movies of all time, and there's only one murder that takes place on screen. I, I think, you know, we think, like, high body count means scarier, and this movie just proves that, like, you don't need a lot of kills to make something so intense and scary. We don't know what the blood from the elevator means. It doesn't really have to mean anything specifically. It's just terrifying. Five five bright red Pennywise cloud noses. Nice, nice. Rachel. You know, it's all right, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Like this five, five bright red Pennywise clown noses. This movie, it's got to be one of the movies I've seen the most. And I never get tired of seeing it. It's a visual marvel to me. I love looking at this film. You know, the it's it's rare to me. I think, you know, we I, I know we talked about a lot, but the, the production design is as infamous as the film itself, right? And the the attention to detail and the way that it was all assembled and just the irrational, implausible, like inescapable, like maze that Kubrick creates with this place and the carpets and the, you know, the blocking and everything. It really is a piece of art. And like, I know that there's a lot of issues in it and I know it is just a movie at the end of the day, but it is just stunning what he was able to do and the fact that there are so many theories and like I don't know it's just one of those things that it's hard to actually put into words but it's something that will continue to age relatively well I think and it's something that I'll never get tired of watching and yeah just an incredible example of what can happen when um a difficult but brilliant mind is given all the resources to really fulfill a vision awesome jed yeah uh i've ever said five out of five pennywise 
Pennywise clown noses. It's uh, <laughs> one of the, for me, one of my favourite films of all time. The greatest horror film of all time, most likely. Um, maybe second or third scariest because we know what's first. But it, it's it's definitely it's definitely <laughs> up there. True. And I think one of the the interesting things that that we didn't touch upon that it kind of delves into is something that's kind of hot right now in horror, which is liminal spaces. Just the fact something eerie and otherworldly uh, um, in empty spaces, uh, recognizable spaces that are now kind of empty. And um, so these corridors, these these empty ballrooms, it's just just tapping into something in the zeitgeist right now which i think, think is quite interesting um yeah and just the performances the the sound design the, the score absolutely incredible and it's it's almost unbeatable it, you, you watch it you just wonder why you even try to make films because you're never going to make a film as good as the shining but yeah and it, if someone was to do a, a, a like a remake of the shining the only way you could do it is if you if you go completely different because you'll never touch this my i would like to see the shining from the point of view of tony which which we know from the book oh, is is, nice. is danny when he's slightly older so that would be great if you point of view of tony trying to get through to his younger self um not like dr sleep but more like he's like a teenager go danny stay away from that room don't go in that room go go faster and stuff and just so it's a little bit like david lowry's a ghost story where but it's but it's Tony Tony's story. Um, that's what I'd like to see. And then you can explore the other rooms. What's happening when the characters aren't around? That that's what I'd kind of like to see. Oh, I love that. That's a, oh god. That, I'm, that's gonna swim in my head for a while now. It's a really good pitch. I love it. I, I mean, what the hell else would we say? I mean, it's so hard to think about the shining in a capsule format. Like I, I like just even like thinking about final thoughts. Writing this just was so daunting and. It's kind of how I felt when I was writing a piece on the 40th anniversary a few years ago, because I, I, um, I don't know, I, I, it's, it's just, it's so, it's so ever changing. It's, a, it, it, there's so many moods that that are tied with it, which is ultimately why I, I just basically called the shining a state of mind. Um, and I think at the time I was leaning on where we were psychologically. Um, I wrote that around May 2020, so it was about. Uh, three months into the pandemic and the quarantine. So I argued kind of like Groundhog Day, it's become a modifier for our own state of being. It's like, oh, this is like The Shining, you know? And and I still think that's true today. I think like how Xerox is what Xerox is or, you know, Kleenex is what tissues are. Like, I think The Shining is like that sort of state we think of with cabin fever. And I think that's a really interesting state of ubiquity that not a lot of movies can get. And I think that when you reach that, it's really important. But I I think it's it's interesting too because I think the movie is more than a movie. I think it's a it's a mood. It's like a brand. I mean, the designs, the outfit, the music. I mean, it's over forty fucking years old, and not only are we still talking about it, but it's arguably one of the most memeable movies ever. And again, I think it's because it's such an obdurate rock of pop culture, and I think much of that stems the way it was constructed. I mean, as we discussed all evening it's like mathematically layered, like nearly to precision. And I think a lot of those creative decisions have turned this, turned it into like this infinite well that's going to likely keep all of us nourished every time we go to drink from it. And I, and I, again, this is all just precious talk to say that the shining is just a fucking great movie. It's it's immaculately conceived. Um, and it's far more than a shiny car with an, without an engine, uh, Steven, I, I apologize. Uh, but, um, Look, I mean, this movie is going to continue to evolve as we do. I think we're going to keep finding new and unnerving ways to to watch it. 
and to and for that movie to pique our own curiosity and keep us awake at night. So for that reason, all timer for me, like uh, all you've been saying, one of my favorite movies of all time. This is a t- five noser. And I'll add a little, um, what are they? The Calumet cans that they're in the background, maybe some <laughs> peanut butter and some crackers, you know, anyway. Um, well, good news. Uh, it looks like our, uh, messages got through on the CV after all the boys in blue from Sidewinder have arrived and can take us back into town. But before we go, let's catch everyone up on where we're going next. Jed, we know you're going to Chicago to be haunted by real ghosts, but, uh, yep. what else do you have coming up? <laughs> Uh, so Dashcam's coming out theatrically. Um, I don't. We haven't released the date yet, so it's coming out in the this year. Um, Can't wait! It, cannot wait. Uh, and you need to see it in the cinema. Don't wait till it goes into digital. See it in the cinema because it, it is a sight to behold. Um, then I have a video game, a live action video game called Ghosts, coming out soon uh, with all the girls from Host, Jim Henson's Can't Creature wait. Shop, working me on it, Trevor oh. Henderson um it's it designed a creature called the long lady i just got all my friends together and made something cool so that comes out soon um there you'll see something that i've directed come out this year i can't say what it is because it's not been announced yet but that's cool and um and yeah lots of lots of top secret projects but really really cool ones uh, I guess I guess at some point there's the Sam Raimi movie coming out um, as well. Well, Rob is actually off directing a, a Stephen Steve King adaptation, the, the Boogeyman. He's, his first day was yesterday, so it's uh, quite relevant um, to this. That's cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. The, the, I can't wait for all of that. I actually, I really can't wait for Ghosts because I've. Is the concept still that you have to play at a certain hour, or is that because I know I remember reading about that initially? Yeah, and every, everyone hated me for it when I when I. No, said, it's so cool. I know it's the coolest thing. Um, so yeah, so for those that don't know, this game is locked to 10 p.m. So whatever format you get in, uh, Nintendo Switch, PC, Mac, uh, PlayStation, the game will only work at 10 p.m. because the conceit so cool. is you are a producer director of a uh, live TV show um, called Ghosts, where a bunch of people go into a haunted house to, to, to investigate and it's live it's live you have to yeah if, if you die you have to wait till the next day 10 p.m until you can play again so oh it'll God, be so, cool. so everyone in, in your time zone will be working together to try and unlock these secrets of, of this game and um we have the, the code is incredible the code is where the real money is like at some point we'll sell that code because we've had to start from scratch and and the and the developers had to make something that actually works with live action and isn't like the 90s version of what full motion video games were it's yeah it's, i was thinking about that like night trap or something yeah it comes to mind it's like it, it's it's if you think of night trap but like but good <laughs> basically uh, yeah exactly um but no it's, <laughs> it's alice alice Lowe is is in it and some other cool people and yeah just having jim henson's creature shop on board just 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 made it like the dream come true for me and um yeah i oh, can't wait <laughs> it's great that's gonna be exciting that's exciting well we'll definitely keep in touch on that one yeah that's uh that's so fucking cool um well thank you first off thank you so much for out for, for being on this was so it's much been fun, a pleasure man. you guys have been great yeah i'm excited to hear it back again <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll definitely get it out there. Uh, but uh, Rachel, what do you got uh, working on right now? Um, before I get into that, I just have to say, like, okay, we've been talking about this for three hours, and I just think it's wild that there's still so much of this movie left to talk mm-hmm. about. So that just, I, I mean, speaks to it. But yes, it's, it's wild. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> um, what I'm working on. So I just recorded an episode of Pod and Pendulum with my our friend Mike Snoonian, who's also in psychoanalysis, which Jen 
co-hosts as well. Uh, we did an episode on Child's Play 3, so that'll be out soon. And then I also should have an interview coming out uh, this next week that I did with uh, Tori Letzler, who's an incredible vocalist um, on basically all the Marvel films and a composer. She just did the score for the new Netflix series called In From the Cold. And uh, so you'll be able to check that out on the lingo. And Flieger, are you uh, ready to reach the tower this fall? Oh, yeah. No, it's going to be a fun year for Dark Tower lore. Um, Jesus I guess Christ. the thing I'll just plug is the we did the interview, me and Dan Caffrey, with Richard Chismar about Gwendy's final task. Um, and that was a really fun conversation and uh, book's worth checking out. And to Rachel's point, too, Mike and I, when we were kind of planning what we wanted to discuss, we both came up with pages and pages and pages of new stuff. And I was like, this is just new things I want to talk about. I think any of us could have just talked for five hours just on our pre-existing thoughts. So I thought it was cool that you brought the music in too, Rachel, because that's, you know, hopefully yeah, a new element great. that the audience will enjoy. Thanks. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I, and honestly, thank you everyone for the, your, first off, your patience and, and your help on this. So this was, um, you know, we set a bar for ourselves here at the Losers Club all the time. Um, we, you know, we try to make sure that we're covering every nook and cranny, um, which, you know, oddly enough, we did on a lark and we've basically trapped ourselves in this um so a lot again we're a lot like jack torrance we've just literally uh, frozen ourselves in these sort of uh high stakes situations for ourselves so i will say the anxiety was high going into this but god damn it did i love this episode this is this is an absolute fucking blast and just hey it's friday night and this is a hell of a way to, to kick off friday night but um let me uh, you know, catch you up on where we're going to go next. We have Dreamcatcher is our next book episode. So start reading that one because it is Ooh. fucking long. Uh, it's like 600, 700 pages and it goes places. I'll just put you there. <laughs> oh um, and then it, it's crazy, this book. Mm-hmm. But uh, in addition to that, we're going to be doing a Souls Midnight episode on government cover-ups to kind of tie in with that. So it'll probably be a little bit of an extension of kind of the MK Ultra stuff that we discussed in December. It's going to be creepy. Um, what else? I mean, who knows? We got to kind of put together the March schedule. I'll admit that as much. So stay tuned to our socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, uh, where we have more than just messages. I mean, we got memes, we've got anniversary posts, we've got giveaways, we've got lots of goodies. I think we're actually going to be giving away some coffee from dead sled coffee soon, which is great. Uh, it chapter two coffee. If you were watching it chapter two and you thought, you know, this movie, it's two and a half hours long or almost three, three hours long. I kind of need some fucking cup of joe. Well, guess what? Dead Slug Coffee just made it, so we're going to get into that a little bit. But uh, speaking of other goodies, you can unlock hundreds, hundreds of hours of extra content at The Barons, our long-running Patreon account, www.patreon.com slash The Barons. You really won't regret it. There's always a big surprise waiting for you in The Barons. But let's be real, constant listeners. There's always a big surprise waiting for you in the main feed. That's why you're not going to go anywhere. No, 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 no. We'll see you next Friday. We'll see you the Friday after that and the Friday after that one forever and ever and ever over long days. And pleasant pleasant nights. nights. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. This is the end of our show. For now. Tune in next week. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, 
SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>